Hello and welcome to the Squiggly Podcast. I'm Steve Henderson and I'm joined by Mr. Ben Mitchell. Hello, Ben. How are you this fine day? Oh, all is well. All is dandy, I would say. Dandy, wow. And I'm, I'm sure to get even dandier now that we've uh, launched into our latest podcast. Excellent, excellent. Brightens my day, brightens your day, brightens everyone's day, I'm sure. It's too bright. I, I'm, I'm squinting. Well, who do we have? On today's episode of the Squiggly Podcast. Let me tell you, Ben. Let me tell you. We've got an interview with producer Jackie Cockle of Timmy Time and Bob the Builder fame. We've also got an interview with Greg McLeod of the Brothers McLeod talking about his Kickstarter campaign for Martha and other work. And loads more juicy tidbits and fun and games, as is standard. Yes, we bring it. <laughs> All right, let's let's get the shindig started, shall we? It's that time of podcast where we uh, we round up new developments, things that have caught our respective eyes. Animation news, I suppose. I mean, we don't really have to start with this, but we've just kind of settled into it, haven't we? It's a sort of news roundup. I say news roundup. What it is is it's a little bit of news. And then we'll talk about the return of Jafar from 20 years ago or something like that. That's usually the way around it. We aim to please. We do. We do. It has been a great month for trailers. I've been pleasantly surprised with the, the output of trailers. Because recently we've been, we've been kind of discussing trailers that have been coming up, which have been like the Paddington Bear movie, the god-awful Postman Pat movie. And, and and other things, and it seems that kind of cinema was just kind of just regurgitating old ideas and things like that. And so there's a couple of, of new trailers which seem bursting with fresh ideas. And there's also a Disney film coming out. <laughs> Disney obviously famous for for taking, you know, well-loved tales and sticking their own twist on it. And uh, that seems to be the case with Big Hero 6, which is a uh, Marvel comic which has been given the Disney treatment. Have you seen this trailer, Ben? Uh, yes, I have. I think it, the trailer kind of felt like a short film in and of itself. It was rather nicely done. It's a teaser, really, isn't it? It's uh, just a little a little sample in... Uh... That's a good name for it. They should take that on board. Yeah, well... I think it'd catch on. If anyone hasn't seen it, it's a kind of... I'd say it's kind of Avengers-y Iron Man kind of build-a-robot kind of style... I think I think you probably disagree, Ben. But the musical cues, is, uh, for me, of a slight Avengers feel. It's you know, it's it's got that kind of that action flavour to it. Um, we basically the, the the teaser for those who haven't seen it, uh, log on to squiggly dot com and find the story. Um, but those who can't be bothered doing that, uh, it's basically we follow young hero Hamanda as he's kitting out his lovable squishy robot sidekick Baymax in this kind of suit of armour for robots, really, because uh, apparently in this universe, robots are squishy, uh, which is a, it's an interesting look, isn't it? It's an interesting kind of take on the whole, what you expect from robots in cinema. Well, the robot in Red Dwarf is kind of squishy, but I think that's just because he's getting on a bit. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was interesting that I personally wasn't aware that Disney and Marvel were sort of in cahoots. And I, in my head, I wouldn't have sort of put the two together. But then I'm kind of out of the Disney-Marvel loop, I suppose. I think uh, Disney are in cahoots with everyone. Also this month, J.J. Abrams, live from the set of uh, the new Star Wars movie, has uh, 
I think he's launched some kind of competition to be an extra in the film. Star Wars is now a Disney property and the Avengers and Spider-Man and everything else is now a, a, a Disney property. They've got their fingers in many pies. Steve? Mm-hmm. Have you applied to audition to be in the new Star Wars film? I have not applied. Tell me the truth. I have not applied to be in the new Star Wars film. I, I can imagine it being like a kind of, like the cue for the X Factor, but with a more kind of pungent smell. A lot more visible body hair. Yeah. <laughs> so has Walt Disney ever worked with Marvel in the sort of adapting a previous Marvel story before, like as animation? Um, not as part of the classics canon you know not as part of the animated feature classics canon Mm -hmm. but um marvel and disney have 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 had a kind of relationship going for a few years now um disney released uh the avengers iron man 3 and basically everything since then and also abc which is a disney company uh i've been showing the agents of shield but yeah this is the first time that they've taken a kind of property from from Marvel. Uh, not, it's not a very well-known comic, Big Hero 6. Uh, so obviously that leaves it wide open for Disney to kind of stick their own stamp on it as well. Yeah, from the, uh, from the look of it, it seems kind of unique. It, it seems like something that w- goes rather well with Disney. Like it wouldn't have surprised me if it had been like an original concept from their sort of point of view. Mm-hmm. Be interesting to see what the sort of major differences are between the original material and how it's um how it's developed but yeah so we've only seen i I guess one of the six basically yeah or two of the six basically are they a motley crew of uh, of underdogs and misfits and unexpected heroes or are they kind of more traditional like i have absolutely no idea you're asking the wrong person i don't have the big hero six back catalog but you say that, but you knew what the name of the big white robot was. So I think you learn more than you're letting yeah, on. I still don't know as much as you think I know. <laughs> I have got this um, knack of being able to pretend that I know more than I do. It's it stood me well for 22 podcasts. Well, I don't know. Don't, mm-hmm. Please don't listen back and, and figure out that I'm wrong. Oh, it's okay. It's okay. People, people figure it out all the time. <laughs> oh, thank you. It's just, no, you're only wrong about things that people don't care about, though, which I think is the best kind of thing to be wrong about. If you were, like, Secretary of State, then maybe we'd have an issue. But we we do a podcast where we talk about the new Peanuts movie. I think there's a bit more of a margin for error. Good. If we pronounce it Schultz or Schultz, like, people aren't going to lynch us. Good. I feel a lot more comfortable then. Yes. That's what I bring to the table. I, I keep everything calm and comfortable. Marvellous. I'm feeling calmer already, Ben. A soothing oral balm. <laughs> That's A-U-R-A-L. Yes, so, yes. Just saying. So the big squishy robot uh, film uh, is coming next year, I believe. I think uh, I think we've got about another year. No, no, no. Um, November in, in the States and then uh, early next year in the UK, I think. Have you seen the Book of Life trailer, Ben? Yeah, oh, this one looks really lovely. This is the um, the sort of Day of the Dead, Mexican-flavoured looking one, right? It is, yes. It's the Day yeah. of the Dead film that isn't the Pixar Day of the Dead film. Okay. They beat them to the punch. Well, yeah, supposedly, yeah. It looks it looks that way. But there's a couple of years before uh, Lee Uncrich and Pixar unveil um, Day of the Dead. Nothing's known about it, really, so... Uh, 
we don't know if if it's going to be like an ants bug life situation or or what really you know I think the issue with ants and bugs life is that they sort of came along you know around the same time I think if they'd been sort of separated by a couple of years people wouldn't have been sort of as quick to jump on mm-hmm. you know the similarity but no this one looks a uh, very interesting very visually kind of yeah original for 3d cg which is happening more and more you know thankfully we're not just getting more and more movies that just look like shrek or you know the sort of standard kind of pixar fare not that there's anything wrong with that but it's it is sort of they've kind of done all they can do with it uh, to an extent and i think that one of the things that we've discussed quite a lot on, on the podcast given that we do so much uh coverage of short films that give filmmakers sort of leeway to really really sort of think outside the box and come up with really visually exciting concepts and ways of doing things and ways of constructing and rigging characters if it's character based and uh, and such the hope would be to see more of that in features and i think that you know this is the kind of thing that uh, really is a step in the right direction especially when you consider that the film that the studio did before was freebirds and that was kind of the epitome of that fairly typical cg style yeah that was that was that was pretty disappointing to see that because John Crisfalusi released his own kind of character concepts for that film, and they had like a kind of the the, the classic uh, Crisfalusi edge to them, and none of that was evident in the final film, and so you you could kind of see the um, you know what they were doing what they did with freebirds is in like oh god here we go another studio's just kind of given in to the to the system that's in place this kind of you know um let's create a generic 3d animation uh you know sorry cg animation 3d cg animation you know stock film for kids you know keep the kids happy whilst um pixar and dreamworks are by no means the only kind of players in this kind of game anymore um, all these studios are coming out and, and creating films like Despicable Me and Sony having a great run. Films kind of, they do have a similar vibe to them. And, you know, you'd be forgiven for seeing the first film, uh, Freebirds, from from real effects and thinking, oh, there we go, they're falling into the same trap. Um, but this doesn't seem to be the case with Book of Life. It seems that they've come up with a, a fresh take on things. I mean, the analogy I, I thought when when watching the trailer was, we've got these gorgeous art of books which Pixar and, and other companies always release when a film comes out and you look at some of the artwork in there and you think oh god if they'd have been so bold as to use that for the whole film how spectacular would that have been the book of life just looks like that brought to life you know to use a, a tired analogy it, it certainly looks interesting you know it certainly looks like they're they're doing something different which is nice visually at least Trailer-wise, they're not doing anything different at all. The song is absolutely appalling. <laughs> I'm not a fan of the song. Yeah. What is that impulse with, like, having to have that cringy, cheesy pop? Like, is it's, I don't even know how much that could even influence the marketing of the film at this point. Mm-hmm. Like, Because back in the day, a big hit single associated with the film would really bolster the film's visibility, you know. Uh, that god-awful song that was written for um, that Robin Hood movie with Morgan Freeman. Oh, what's he called? Brian Adams, Everything I Do, yeah, I Do yeah, It yeah. For You. Yeah, That was everywhere. <laughs> that movie was on TV the other day. And uh, he said, flicking through the channel, so he catch the end credits, like, oh my God, this song. 
No. <laughs> but people loved it. You know, with Disney movies, obviously, they have the, the one of the songs from the film, like, re-recorded, like Elton John and The Lion King and stuff like that. And um, let, let It Go has become huge, hasn't it? It's like, you yeah. can't avoid it, which is a shame. When it's just kind of like a pop song, you know, like, uh, uh, what was it? Uh, uh, um, Arthur Christmas had a Justin Bieber song in it. Hmm. What is the need for that? Yeah. But, you know, that aside, you know, I'm sure that was probably something the people who worked on the film share share that particular lament. Oh, sure, sure. I I mean, to look at the film, like I say, visually, it looks like they've captured this kind of um, Day of the Dead Mexican kind of vibe. And it it looks excellent. It looks brilliant. Um, and the song just kind of ruins it. It kind of takes you away from that. It, it, it's a step towards the kind of tedious um, stuff that we've seen already. But, you know, I'm sure that the, the song choice isn't a decision of of the same uh, artists that created the, the look of the film, at least. Mm-hmm. But as, as ever, with most trailers, uh, we got to see uh, what the whole thing looks like on the big screen. And, uh, you know, certainly, you know, it's piqued my interest. Well, it also looks like um, the story is kind of interesting. It has a bit of a sort of corpse bridey flavour to it, hmm. but uh, enough of its own kind of thing. And I, you know... It's that kind of Burtony edge, but not like sort of too far beyond. It's still quite bright and colourful. It's not all sort of like greys and uh, blues. Zombie type designs. There's probably a sort of more traditional term for that kind of, uh, uh, you know, art style. But done in this very kind of fun, punchy way. Mm-hmm. That I think like it could probably broaden its audience a bit. And it has Channing Tatum as one of the voices. <laughs> Which, you know, as I always say, whenever I'm pondering what film I'm going to see, you had me at Channing. <laughs> it is the film for you, Ben. It's got it all. So it's something that it reminded me of. It's visually rich, which you get from Leica films. Oh, yeah. And I think the kind of uh, excitement that comes from a, a Leica trailer is the craft that's gone into the film. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why I'm excited about The Book of Life. It does look like... Each character is unique. Each character could have been designed by a different person, but it all still fits together. And that's something that's always kind of perplexed me, is if you've got this kind of, this world of endless possibilities, you're not restricted by gravity like you are in stop motion, or you're not restricted by puppets or, or, or what you can do. You, you've got no limitations. Why do you have to make all of your characters cast from the same mould, you know, but just put different hairstyles on or you know, different looks. And this just kind kind of mm. throws it all all out there. You know, if it, it looks like they've had a good idea and they've kept it. I have a feeling it could be the kind of thing that would help put it on the map. Just kind of seemed that Freebirds didn't kind of have that instant. There was nothing about when the, like, the trailer came out and when it was sort of being released where people were like, oh my God, you have to see this. This looks amazing. And with this, like a year or so later... Like, it's a very different immediate reaction. There's a very strong social media reaction to this great new trailer. Everyone has to check this out. That's quite telling, and hopefully it's sort of indicative of what they're probably more likely to stick to. Fingers crossed. Yeah, interesting. They also did those old, um, well, not old, but the uh, the sort of revived Warner Brothers shorts, I'm saying here. Oh, right. Cool. Which we talked about a while back when we had uh, Matt O'Callaghan on. Uh, I think he directed one of them, and they did the Wiley Coyote ones, and... I remember what the ones of those I saw, and you know I'm a bit of a, a Looney Tunes snob, and I had nil hopes for like a, a CG version of Roadrunner. Like I'm like, no, nah, no, nah, don't bother. It's it's already good. And I watched it, and I was like, eh, they didn't ruin it. 
and actually it had some pretty fun stuff in it so you couldn't really complain whereas the um the cg roadrunner stuff that uh went on tv mm-hmm. the looney tunes show yeah i remember we did we like our sort of second or third episode did we like go off on that for like half an hour it sounds very very like, like something we would do but <laughs> i remember we got out like the chuck jones book and he has like the list of rules of what not to do in a roadrunner cartoon and this like this version of roadrunner <laughs> like broke all those rules <laughs> See, that's why you got to be careful. You never know what dorks might be listening. Oh, yeah, armed with books. <laughs> You're destroying the mythology of the Roadrunner. <laughs> I, I think one of the, the, the things that may have contributed to Real FX's first CG feature being so bland-looking and generic uh, is probably probably down to the, the whole studio system. I mean, if it's hard to believe that the same studio's planning to release somebody, something as visually compelling as this. So perhaps they they really wanted to go for the John K style. They really wanted to go for and push the boundaries of of CG features, but just weren't allowed to. I'm not privy to that information, but it seems likely. Mm-hmm. You know, you can never just blame the film. You've got to blame the circumstances surrounding the film. I believe. You know, you can't just say that's just a terrible film. End of. You know, there's, there's reasons behind most things. You know, if you can, if if people can take credit for success, then people should take credit for failure as well. Or, or uh, not so much success. Uh, another trailer that uh, I think, in a way, kind of ties in with what you were saying about how you know those kind of art of books. You know, there's a certain vibe, there's a certain aesthetic, sort of conceptual, like that sort of like that stage of of design. How nice it would be to have that sort of be completely captured in the film, and that's that's something I definitely got from this other trailer, uh, Song of the Sea. Mm-hmm. Cartoon Saloon. Uh, Tom Moore's next film from. Uh, from the same studio that brought you Secret of the Kells. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm very much looking forward to this. I mean, I did make excuses there for real effects making their first film so kind of generic. And it seems odd that we're now talking about Cartoon Saloon, who did the complete opposite, because The Secret of the Kells was, was beautiful, absolutely beautiful. But it wasn't destined for the box office, really, was it? It was more a kind of treat for the festival circuit and and select kind of indie cinemas and things like that it didn't quite get the exposure that was expected of freebirds mm. but it was still absolutely gorgeous there's just a, a design to these films which is just i can't praise it highly enough it's it's just from the trailer it just looks absolutely magnificent and the best thing about the trailer for me is that it was released in hd so i could just put it on the biggest screen i had and just just watch it again and again <laughs> Which I rarely do, you know. It just gives so much that detail of, like, you know, the backgrounds and the, the landscapes and everything. And I think that the increasing sort of uh, prevalence of HD, um, I mean, it's been a standard for a while, but I think that, you know, the that things are kind of being designed with that in mind now in a way that really kind of gives films the breadth to really go crazy with the super ornate backgrounds. And in a way, a film like this... Its appeal, I expect, would go sort of beyond the sort of standard animation fans. Because when you look at the character animation, it's very good, but it's not like super complex or like really sort of elaborate, like Disneyfied full animation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's full animation, but again, like the character designs are modern. There's not so much, um, it's not like every moment is being filled. Yeah. But the way it's all put together, each shot is like a work of art. And I think that element of the film 
is something that would appeal, I think, to you know illustrators and designers as well. Anyone who really sort of works in film and has a sort of respect for how good cinematography is put together. I expect that's actually, you know, a big component of the appeal in a lot of anime movies where so much attention goes into the, you know, the backdrops and stuff like that. Whereas the animation is usually on quite a low frame rate mm-hmm. compared to sort of Western animation. But they still work as a film because they're so immersive. Yes. You do watch The Song of the Sea and it does make you think, if they can create something so beautiful, what's everyone else's excuse? Possibly people just can't... It's just not an option. Everything kind of has to really kind of fall into place in a way when you're sort of charged with being at the helm of like a feature film or any kind of visual project that, you know, all the people can do their jobs and do their jobs well. But just sort of coming up with something that's visually compelling and visually ingenious... I expect for most people it's not something you can sort of force. Like, I think obviously for it to be done properly, you need to put a lot of time into it and a lot of effort into it. But for a lot of people, it's just even getting that first, like, nugget to build on. That's just not an option available to them because a lot of people just don't kind of think that way. And it's it's kind of tragic sometimes because you get people who are, they really want to be creative and then um, it just doesn't sort of happen. And so you find out that they have a muffin stall and that's how they've, you know that's their their life path now you know <laughs> you know obviously somebody like tom moore has got both the talent and he knows how the animation industry works he's you know he, he's done so very well and the studio's done so very well gathering the funding and being able to kind of project his vision uh, to a cinema audience which is you know great work Whereas if you just sit there with your arms crossed expecting people to come to you, it's not the way around it. There is no excuse. Just put some elbow grease into it. Yeah. You work shy bastards. <laughs> there is a kind of a special design around um, the work of Cartoon Saloon, which I'm a big fan of. Another thing to sort of consider is what is this story going to be about? Because that hasn't really been elaborated on too much in the trailer. Mm-hmm. which is, I think, served the trailer rather well in the sense that it's it's kind of mysterious, you know? Usually, when you get a good vibe off a film from a trailer, it, it does tend to sort of follow through, you know? Mm-hmm. So with animation, I guess, more than live action. I think live action is more sort of easy to manipulate into sort of seeming like it's an interesting film from a, a teaser or a trailer, and then you go in and, and it's the trailer's completely misrepresented what you're going to see yeah but i think with animation they tend to just kind of but i can't think of any films where i saw the trailer and i then saw the film and it was like completely not what i was expecting i think i think pixar do that though with their trailers you reckon pixar of, of yeah yeah pixar uh, when they release their first trailer not the teaser trailers when they release the first trailers there's never really a hundred percent feel of the story or or anything else i would say Correct me if I'm wrong, look look back on a couple of Pixar trailers, earlier Pixar trailers, and tell me if, if you get given the the full story, as you do with, with most of the others. No, you're actually looking, aren't you? Yeah, I'm going to just wait here while I watch all the trailers for the first... How many, how many years shall I look at? The year gap. Uh, try Wally. Try Wally. No, don't try Wally. That's, that's going to be a terrible one, isn't it? Everyone, anyone I suggest now, you, because, of the, because of hindsight, you're going to have this kind of, um, oh, yeah, well, yeah, I knew this was going to happen because you've already seen it. I haven't seen Wally. Oh, haven't you? Oh, well, I've seen bits of it. 
on TV, but it wasn't. It didn't feel like I wanted to watch all of it. Yeah. Well, this is going to be great then. I would have seen the trailer, and I never really got the impression that it was something I would enjoy so much. I just wasn't its audience, and then seeing bits of it on TV that kind of reinforced that. Mm-hmm. I have a question. You will probably know the answer to. Why in Wally? It's a futuristic wonderland slash post-apocalyptic dystopia populated, of course, by the, the sort of charming Pixar inhabitants. But Fred Willard is just Fred Willard. <laughs> Why is that? Because all the other people are cartoons. Yeah, yeah, but he's... But why is Fred Willard live action? I've absolutely no idea. I think the idea, well... Did they just, did no one notice that until just now? <laughs> well, no, this one... <laughs> I thought it was just very good CG. No, the, um, he, he plays the, the president of Iron Large and, and, um, he's the guy that communicates through old, old tapes to the ship's captain. But there is a part in, in Wall-E where you, you scroll across the, uh, pictures of previous ship's captains and there's a weird kind of merger from a photograph of like a, an, an actor and it kind of merges in a kind of bizarre kind of photoshoppy way to this kind of animated blob character which they've become. Ah. And there's a, there's, a, there's a sort of evolution there and it may have come from the earlier drafts of the film where hum, the human race would have become literally like jelly blobs like in you've seen Lifted the one with the the alien taking his driving test yeah that's a Pixar film the humans in Wall-E were originally going to be blobs like that they would have eaten and 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 got fat and then genetically modified foods and they would have basically become squishy blobs so maybe that kind of evolution from a live action to an animated character would have made a lot more sense Mm. if they would have become a translucent blob as opposed to being the kind of squishy stress toy animated character style thing yeah technically speaking <laughs> <clears throat> i gotta be honest with you i felt that the that is that has that has sort of explained it so thank you um you're welcome i felt that the overall message was a little like disingenuous to be honest because it's a it's kind of it's 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 so obvious but you know, I mean, I remember like uh, the old Disney show Dinosaurs, the the Jim Henson puppets. Hmm. It's like a kind of dinosaur Simpsons, but it was a lot more than that. It was it was actually much more sort of environmentally conscious in terms of what the stories were about, and and but it wasn't like a preachy show. And they would actually sort of make great pains to not be that kind of show. They would just make these very sort of understated observations of like, yeah, you probably shouldn't do that. Whereas with Wally, I, I kind of felt like it's it was laying it on sort of super thick, like what's gonna happen to people? We're just not, we're all gonna not be able to stop and smell the roses. And uh, oh, she found the one plant left that means so. Much. Meanwhile, the merchandising of that film alone probably contributed more to the overall future desolation of our planet. <laughs> How many? F- Wally toys did they make? Yeah, with their little electronic voice boxes or plushies or you know d- d- gadgetry and and d- d- all made from non-biodegradable materials. Well, the d- the DVDs were actually released in a kind of eco-friendly biodegradable packaging, which was like a kind of it was it was a cardboard packaging. It was biodegradable. It was is everything which you kind of are kind of expecting from a from a film. 
Then every film since has been <laughs> just this like bulk plastic again. Here's why that's that bugs me even more. That's making such a superficial public relations gesture of eco-consciousness uh-huh. in the name of this film that has such a minimal effect in the greater scheme of, you know, what is actually going to happen. And I'm not saying that I'm not the kind of environmental, you know, stand on my soapbox Greenpeace guy. I Fine, make your films, release them on DVD, release them, put as much plastic into the air as, as we can, fine. We'll all be dead. Next generation problem. I'm selfish. <laughs> I'm a piece of shit. I'm at peace with that. I don't need to come up with some fabricated BS, like, sort of gesture of, you know, or, like the people who, like, you know, they donate to Greenpeace and then they tell all their mates on Facebook that that's what they do and then they never recycle again in their life. Yeah. You know? it, it, it's like um, people on Twitter that do say, tweeting for, like, uh, awareness of, of environmental awareness, not aware that when they send that tweet somewhere there's this big kind of growling, steaming server that's belching out CO2 in order to send that tweet, that badly spelt tweet to like loads of people around the world. <laughs> so by the way, I'm not going to stop tweeting. Just, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm still going to send my shitty tweets there still. <laughs> we should tweet more in defiance. At Squiggly, folks. <laughs> But yeah, there's a lovely observation by a, a guy called Eugene Merman, who is one of the voices in Bob's Burgers. There's your animation connection. But he, he's a stand-up as well, and he makes a uh, comment in one of his um, his earlier shows about these amazing films that preach, you know, the the annihilation of Earth because of you know technology rising against us. Films like Terminator Two, The Matrix, for example. Meanwhile, these films are heralded as such great leaps forward in technological advancement that they're contributing <laughs> to the very doomsday that they're prophesizing. <laughs> That's a good one. It's all just deflection. Bless their cotton socks. Yeah. Anyway, Wally wasn't a favorite of mine, but uh, they won me back as they always do. They're lovable rascals. Yeah. Just keep making Toy Story movies. <laughs> Yeah, nothing's stopping that. They're still making the shorts, the Toy Story shorts, which are uh, nice to see every now and then. The gang's back together again. Yippee. <laughs> what is interesting, looking back at the kind of the, the three trailers that have been released, or at least two of them, is that it, it does look like a fresh new kind of dawn for animation, at least in this moment, in this last week or two. <laughs> it does look like a fresh kind of dawn of animation. At least there is some original work happening and being kind of distributed out there which is which is great news for animation fans and it's great news for the future of animation i'd say it's a very positive way of looking at things well i'll try my best so last month i participated in a couple of panel discussions at the bristol comic expo which were put together by Danny Abram, who's a CG animator. She's worked on projects such as GTA 4, The Numtums, and Pirates in an Adventure with Scientists. And this panel was put together as a sort of roundtable discussion on working in animation. It features Jane Davis, who's become something of a podcast regular. She worked on many children's series over the years, uh, The Encounters Festival branding, and uh, recently Graham Chapman's Liar's Autobiography. She's also collaborated with cartoonist Jamie Smart, animating his Lushkin character. 
Also on the panel are Kerry Dyer and Gareth Kavanagh. Kerry's an accomplished model maker who's been involved with projects such as Fantastic Mr. Fox, Ooglies, and Pirates also, while Gareth works in both animation and game design. He's lectured at the University of South Wales, and his latest project is the interactive Iron App, which he developed for Irontown Interactive. We were able to record some of the panel discussion for your listening pleasure, so here it be. Um, my name is Danny Abram, and I am a CG animator, and I was approached by the organisers of Bristol Comic Expo to put on a couple of talks about the animation industry, and in specifically the animation industry in Bristol. I've worked in Bristol for quite a few, I've worked in animation for seven years so far, and quite a number of those years have been right here in Bristol. Um, I've worked in games, I've worked in children's television series, and uh, the elusive animated feature film as well. So, that's mm. me. Um, what elusive animated feature film? Elusive. What one? The pirates, dude. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get to that. <laughs> <laughs> So when they did ask me if I would organise some talks, I knew exactly who to go to because I've been working here for so many years and so I have a panel of animation heroes. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> but I have it collated for your pleasure. So who wants to start? Jane! Hello, I'm Jane Davis. I've been in the animation industry for 18 years. All of it has pretty much been mostly in Bristol. But over the years I've mainly worked for stuff for children's TV like CBBS and things like that so a lot of my series work but I do, I do a lot of stuff in my own time just to do crazy things because mm. um, I work on broadcast series so that you're very sort of it, everything's got to be in a particular way and everything like that so a lot of my own personal stuff I just do online just for fun can you talk about anything else that you've invented? Um, well, there was the, there was um, Eliza autobiography. There was the the um, Chapman Graham Chapman film that yeah. they did. There was it was released quite a few years ago. That was quite a really cool thing to do. And did you have like Monty, total freedom on that? <laughs> no. Well, in a way, yes, because that was a bit more again. That was a bit more collaboration thing where you were given a section to do, which we happened to get the song section. Which was really cool. Get to flex your yeah. creative muscles. Yeah. Cool. Who's next? Who are you and what do you do? Hi, Kerry. Hi. Um, my name's Kerry Dyer. I'm a stop motion puppet maker and animator, although I don't animate quite so much anymore. Um, but I work in uh, children's TV and film, the elusive one that Danny mentioned earlier, um, and um, adverts and stuff like that. Yeah, um, I also do uh, resin art toys and, and like vinyl figures and that kind of stuff as well, just as a, as a side thing. I tend to specialise in silicon mould making and casting, but I, but I also do armature work as well, so little bits of silver soldering and yeah, twisted metal and ball joints and that kind of thing. Yeah, I also do props and things as well, so I make stuff, lots of different kinds of stuff. Uh, I'm Ben Mitchell. I'm also a freelance animator. I'm based here in Bristol, and I guess I've been working actively since for about four and a half years, and been sort of trying to work for about six years. So things kicked into gear about a year and a half in, and uh, it's been good. Uh, it's different to what I was expecting I would be doing. I started off in motion graphics and music production, 
and that's sort of a handy thing to fall back on and sort of dry spells between character animation work and stuff like that but uh, more and more the last few years I've been sort of doing more of the kind of stuff I want to do which mainly involves sort of short-term freelance contracts for TV shows commercials, music videos. Uh, last year was mainly made up of web content and uh, this year is mainly made up of educational videos. So that's uh, that's me. I also run a, well I co-run with a couple of other fellows an animation blog website which uh, has been uh, a nice way of sort of connecting with the kind of local community and now it's starting to sort of spread a little bit beyond the UK so that's been fun too. Cool. And last but not least... Hello. <laughs> As you can tell from my accent, I'm Bristol, born and raised. <laughs> uh, I, I feel like a bit of a fraud, to be, to be honest with you, because I've only ever worked in Bristol for four months. I, I'm, I'm actually based in Wales, and uh, I haven't been animating for 15 years, but the majority of those 15 years has been in animation, if you know what I mean. I studied in Wales, uh, in the old GCAT, Dill. And uh, I did a really good character animation course, really good, run by really good people. Uh, and it was just 10 minutes down the road from where I live. And uh, I really wanted to be an animator, so it's just like stars aligned, if you believe in matches. And I studied on, the, I did my foundation in art because I was told that's what I needed. And then I did my animation course, and it was fantastic. And I was lucky enough to get a job as a computer games animator. Uh, in Leeds, well not in Leeds, in Dewsbury. Is there anybody from up north here? Great. It was a horrible place. <laughs> a very intimidating place. And the first uh, game, I'd love to say I worked on some really cool games, but I didn't. The first game I worked on, I was animating sheep, which in hindsight is quite right. racist. <laughs> Really? That's terrible. Bastard. I don't know how you... But uh, yeah, and then after after I proved my metal animating sheep, they put me on the Barbie games. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. It was when Barbie was going through a, a, a more masculine phase, I like to think. Yeah, and I worked in, for, in games for about five, six years, and then we came with the company that I worked for set up. They wanted to create a satellite company in Cardiff and so, so we could feed off the, the animation course uh, and that lasted for about a year because they were really bad managers. Um, and then I moved into lecturing so I, I lectured in, uh, in the University of Glamorgan for about eight years on the character animation course. Uh, and then I left because they'd had enough and I went back into animation and I, I saw that there was um, a couple of shows in Wales for about a year and then I moved down to Bristol and worked there for a couple of months and then I'm back and set up set myself up as a as a freelance sort of animator with with intentions of moving into interactive design or making games and that's kind of where I am at the moment and that we've got our first game coming out. But I'm also uh, running the game design course in Cardiff as well in the university so it's all tied in, it's all one. So yeah, I feel like a fraud in that I'm not actually animating at the moment, but when I do get a chance to animate, I do because I love it and it's fantastic. And I'm keeping it. Yeah, I'd like to contest the fraud, please, because one of my pieces of advice would be sit next to the best animator in the room and soak them up like a sponge. That's why I sit next to you. That's Aww. why I sat next to you, Gary. How did that work again? <laughs> <laughs> I think, honestly think oh, like dude. you're one of my animation heroes and you set up your own no. company which is awesome and uh, you already touched upon this in your little introduction so my next question I guess would be for everyone else how did you get started when I first moved to Bristol 
I'd had a little bit of experience in the games industry. I'd worked on GTA 4 up north and came to Bristol and I, I'm not kidding. It felt like there was an animation mafia down here and you had to kill somebody to get in. Because mm -hmm. I don't, yeah, I, I applied for everything, everything. Somehow, some like maybe fate, if you believe in that shit, stars aligned and I got my first job as a junior animator at A Productions on uh, Drive Down Story Train and luckily I've been working ever since. Thank you, animation gods. Um, I studied in Wales, like quite a lot of you. However, it was Swansea. <laughs> but they do a really <coughs> CG animation course, and so that's why I went there. And because I'm CG. Um, how how did you guys get started? Please. Um, I studied in Wales as well, yeah. uh, Newport Newport University. Although I'm not I'm not entirely sure what's going on with their course at the moment because they've uh, they've merged yeah, with Morgan. They've merged with us. Yeah, I, I did the just. You know, animation. I, guess, I suppose it's more of a filmmaking degree than a than a um, technical skills thing. Uh, before that, I did an art foundation, and, and then after that, I did like a year's worth of work placements, which are kind of massively. I mean, in my opinion, they're massively important to to finding work later on. Um, and then, yeah, it's been five, six, maybe seven years. Kind of traditional route. Hard graph university, university work placements West, for a Welsh year university. and Welsh University is the way to go. Yeah. How about you, Jane? Mine was Welsh University as well. <laughs> but I think it's essential, really, especially for yeah. getting into industry, because generally people will want to see if if it's like an entry level, they will want to see some form of um, animation education as well, because obviously there's a lot to learn and everything like that. And, and that was the thing for me, I got on entry level. You think you're learning everything, and when you leave, you think you know everything, but you don't. <laughs> but it is a case of um, the best thing, and I, I've, I've spoken to students many years, and it is just the best thing, is when, when you actually get a placement or in somewhere in industry. It's like what you were saying, you, you just try and learn as much as you can from the people around you. Mm. Um, and if you're lucky enough to get someone to take you under their wing, that's even better and um, yeah just just learn as much as you can because even like established artists they're still an animators the same as that um, you know artists you're always learning mm. you know I've been doing this 18 yeah. years and I'm still definitely learning I always wanted a mentor there was never anybody <laughs> oh, there <laughs> like, you know, like old school Disney, you know. Oh, yeah, like back when in the day when you'd yeah. get an apprenticeship under, like in a studio. And not many, not many. Like yeah. Not many people come be asked these days. But see, I, I was, I was lucky. I did have that because yeah. when I, when I, because obviously it was over eighteen years ago when I graduated. I, uh, we were still using paper, so it was at a light box <laughs> using paper. So I, I was an assistant, and um, so I, I became someone's assistant. So I just learned everything. Um, off of the the key animator, which was Phil Parker, and just learned. Oh, just, uh, but then just became really self conscious because it's like, how can I be as good as this man? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but is you just got to be a sponge, learn sponge, as much as yeah. you can. Ben, how did you get in? Have you got a traditional route, or is it? I'm not really sure if it's traditional. A series of, of I guess, happy accidents. Cool. Born out of laziness and being self-serving. Uh, my A-levels were this sort of nightmarish blur where I kind of left everything a bit too late as far as UCAS and stuff like that. And so 
ended up on a, on a course that I didn't know was going to be a motion graphics course. So I did a bit of a bait and switch, but I took it because it was the only one that gave me an unconditional offer. And I guess the reason why they were giving everyone unconditional offers was they needed a lot of students in because no one, they hadn't done motion graphics, but they were pitching it as a very sort of generic design course. So then I got in and it turned out to be something a lot more interesting than I thought I was, I was going in for. So that's how I sort of got into After Effects and uh, CG programs and stuff like that and learned that CG wasn't really my thing, but After Effects definitely was and that uh, character animation and After Effects together were really sort of where I kind of came into my own a bit. I'd submit this stuff and there would always be some kind of story in them and I'd always like inject it with some kind of character which wasn't usually exactly what they were after. It was acceptable but it sort of I think it kind of clearly laid like my idea of what I wanted to do as, as the next step. So I came to Bristol to do a proper like animation course and then uh, I got a mentor at uh, UWE. Yeah. Basic, well basically just a guy telling me which areas I was worst at which I think is the best kind of mentor to have because the more you learn about like what you're doing wrong the better and uh, he was a, a, a fellow I think a few people in this room are familiar with a guy called Chris Webster who uh, <laughs> <laughs> was my teacher his, uh, his critique of some of my earlier work was absolutely bang on the money um, and quite risky well, he, this is one he uses a lot, uh, moving shit about, yeah. which um, is, is what a lot of like lazy motion graphics is. And especially when I was working in CG, you can make everything look so shiny and well-lit and sophisticated. And so if something has no substance behind it, someone who's actually you know, an animator can see it and see that there's actually nothing that's really sort of got into it. And it's like, but look, it's shiny. <laughs> and so he didn't fall for that. And I was basically going to do something shiny for the animation MA. And he said, please don't do that because I think that there's something better you know in, in terms of the ideas you've thrown about like you know write down five other ideas than the shit you have with robots pardon my language but for the sake of fidelity to history I'm not uh, so I just wrote down a bunch of ideas and one was um, a, a hunter kills a duck and is haunted by the duck's ghost and that wasn't quite it but it became sort of the basis of the student film and then since then I kind of focused on narrative based um, character animation led films and uh, very occasionally like most of last year I, I mentioned I was working on web content that catered very much to that sort of impulse of like you're given a script and you get to design your characters and animate them in whatever style you want it's a very rare kind of commission I found but not so rare within the sort of web world but within the industry itself usually each project has a very strict set of parameters, which is fine, and that's always it's good to sort of have that kind of consistency. But when it's sort of mixed in with stuff where you can sort of spread your wings a bit more, that's kind of nice too. So, how did your how, how did that lead you into a career then? Like, if you're making unusual student films, do you have like a particular style that people come to you for, or did not that get really? You I think I think for the web series that was it. Uh, I think for work work you basically just have to sort of show up and be enthusiastic and, and convey to these people that yes you can do something and you can do it in their style and uh, you're interested in what they have to say and I think when you're being paid to do animation you know ego is very much a thing you can kind of leave at the door and, and you know hopefully there's a sort of sense of community about the project where everyone's all kind of pulling together um, on you know one sort of vision that isn't necessarily each individual's uh, so as far as actually making a career of it, I just kind of went the 
usual route of applying for internships and uh, work experience and then working on pitches and um, that eventually kind of laid a sort of foundation of you know you know certain people and they sometimes call back and that's quite nice when they do but then parallel to that was film festivals um, I'm not sure if I could call that a career it's made money but I'd probably have to file it under supplemental income because like for every festival that you submit to it's going to unless it's like one of those real sort of like earth shattering films it's going to be you know less than half of the ones you submit to are going to show it and probably less than half you'll win any kind of cash prize or uh, most of the awards aren't even cash prizes nowadays Um, so the only sort of money in it is trying to sell your film to TV stations um, or like companies that produce DVDs and things like that and that changes all the time so okay Um, that leads on to my next question actually for everyone what since we've discussed all these different disciplines, which one do you prefer? So we've got like, do you prefer shorts for your festivals or series work, feature film, games, Gareth? Which one? Depends. <laughs> yeah. Totally depends on what the content is. Oh, okay. And, and who you're working with as well. Yeah. Mm. So there's nothing about the structure of a like a like the structure of a series. You quite like that methodical way of working through something or. A, the freedom of a short film. I think it's shorts and features for me because I, I, I just I want to work on a Star Wars film. That's, <laughs> I, I wanted to go to Pixar, and, and and then I saw Cars and that put me off. <laughs> and then I saw Cars too, and it just couldn't really finish me. Buried it yeah, it, yeah, Pixar. <laughs> um, but it's still, well, you know, Star Wars. And it's, I got I got ten years. I've got a ten year window at least to try and get. You know something on a Star Wars film, but it's just um, it's nice to be able to jump around from, you know, from TV to games yeah. to, to anything interactive media. I, I I like working on feature films, but I really like the the sort of sense of community on on shorts and and TV series and how it's you're generally you're a small group of people trying to get something massive done in a very short amount of time and. Like and and mostly on on those sorts of projects, um, when they've not been in Bristol, I've you know moved to Glasgow or Ireland and places, and and all the and everyone else who's working on it has have been lifted up from wherever they're living and they're chucked into the space, and you're all kind of living in in this area you don't know together, and I kind of like that about yeah, it. It's, I'm obviously as well as the the job, and you know I'm quite happy just making stuff. Same on the other side, that because I'm like Jane is in the same position as me now. Now we have children, and it's like yeah, that's so infinitely so more difficult unlearn. to do. Yeah. So it's for me, it's 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 being grounded somewhere now, which means that you know of being in the valleys, and if I, if I'm you know if there's the, at the time there wasn't a great deal of that sort of work there, you know, so it meant setting myself up. I had a, a friend who runs his own games company called David Banner. You know, the, the irony isn't lost of where we are today. Don't make him angry and all that. <laughs> but um, he, you know, he always said he was he, he was like an artist on Tomb Raider and stuff like that. And he said he always said if I couldn't get a job, I'd make the job. So he'd always set himself up. He'd just base himself somewhere and kind of. That's you know, I could see when I was at A, I could see the the, the clock ticking down. And I thought, well, that's what I'm going to have to do now because there's nothing left in Wales. Mm-hmm. So I set myself up. And Planted went. a seed. Yeah. <laughs> It's a, it's a sapling of a word. Awesome. What is your favourite part of production? I've got a really funny, weird 
my, my favourite bit is getting to a new company or on a new project and finding new animation pipeline tools. <laughs> that is what floats my boat. And I don't know if you um, know a company called Brown Bag Films. They do, um, a, a, every Thursday they do an AMA, Ask Me Anything. And you can tweet them a question. And my question to them, this is where these questions come from, is I wanted to know what was their favourite animation pipeline tool. And they told me, they got back to me a real, like, fair amount of detail. They've got this awesome thing that, um, called the BVF Shot Builder. And they've got all the things they need for a different shot in a database somewhere. And you log in. You press the like you, you've got your storyboard set out and you know what you're about to start on. So you press and it, like this little program builds the shot for you, all the assets and the audio and the timeline, all gets built for you in your Maya scene. You open it up and bam, there you go, you're ready to go. Oh, I love that idea because like every uh, production I've worked on, we've had like a, either a team that's done that, like layouts do it, or somebody else like get like the interns and stuff. So animation pipeline tools is my thing. <laughs> I wonder if there's anything else that you love about production, like your favourite bit, like yeah, like storyboarding, planning, finishing. Um, <laughs> I like I like it. I like getting uh, the concept art, like just planning out how the hell I'm going to turn that into oh, a cool. into a three D object or something that's going to have to move in a specific way. How many different yeah. versions of this am I going to have to make to get it to do all of these different movements? I like that how many times it. have you had something and you've looked at it and gone, that's not going to move? Um, you've had to make it move. You've had to make it <laughs> a few times. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes it's my own design work that's the problem. <laughs> but I really, I really like getting other people's designs. In fact, in, in uni, I, I lived with this uh, girl called... Um, Sophie Powell actually, she worked at Dynamo, so yeah. you probably know her. Um, she used to, we lived together and she used to draw stuff for me to make. She'd just draw some random creature or creation and hand it to me, and I'd spend the afternoon building it out of clay or whatever, fur or something I had lying around. So yeah, I like, I like that bit. And we'll hear some more of that roundtable discussion later on in the podcast. In Britain... Our reputation for children's animation is so the inverse of our reputation for adult animation. Like, we're really thriving in that regard. It's it's the thing that the Animation UK, the, the kind of body that petitioned the government to create the animation tax breaks, kind of hinged on. Oh. Ollie Hyatt basically told George Osborne, well... You know, do your kids like what, like a gangster? Do your kids like watching cartoons? Well, there'll be no more cartoons unless you give us tax breaks. <laughs> it's, kind of, it's kind of like that. But in a way, it's, it's completely true. It's, you know, um, we've got a, a wonderful legacy of kids' animation. Mm-hmm. Our animation for kids, rather. You're right. Long may it continue. Mm, absolutely. And I guess in a lot of respects, it kind of starts with stuff like Wallace and Gromit wasn't necessarily a kids' film, but given the kind of ripple effect that had. You know, we got Shaun the Sheep, we got all these sort of mini sort of Wallace and Gromit kids series and that sort of established spokespeople, perhaps, of the British animation scene. If if there's any kind of, you know, informative piece about animation in the UK, you're going to see a picture of Wallace and Gromit or Shaun the Sheep Uh or little Timmy. (laughs) Absolutely. Bless his adorable socks. <laughs> the person that we're, we're going to be talking to in a little while, um, interview-wise, is Jackie Cockle, who brought us Timmy Time, um, the spin-off of a spin-off, <laughs> which I like to say, which still kind of has the, 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 the lovely Aardman 
warmth to it. But I think that's a warmth that comes from a kind of an understanding as to what a children's television series needs to have and not any kind of magical formula that can be bottled or anything. But before she worked on Timmy Time, she was responsible for hot animation. She directed and produced Bob the Builder and worked on Pingu and many other fabulous productions from that particular studio. It is fair to say that Bob the Builder is is and still is such a huge property. Do you remember the time when Bob the Builder came out? What I mainly remember is that he knocked Eminem off the top spot. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it yeah. was just sort of so surreal because it was Neil Morrissey doing this novelty song. <laughs> being, and, you know, not that I rank Eminem particularly highly, but like, what a strange culture. But yeah. Like, you know. <laughs> a fair play to him. They did Can We Fix It? And they also did Lou Bega, the Lou Bega version of the song, which was like a uh, a little bit of mortar, a little bit of hammer, a little bit of chisel, you know, about fixing up the house instead of mm-hmm. and names of uh, all the women that he shagged. <laughs> which wouldn't really go down well <laughs> in, a, in a kid's animated thing. But I was going through the archive that I look after, which has all of the hot animation material in there. And I found the... The sheet music, the original music to the Bob the Builder, the album that they put together <laughs> with all the parody songs. And I remember having it in my hands and thinking, God, if only I was, this was in my hands 13 years earlier. <laughs> <laughs> what I would have done with it. You could have changed the world with that, <laughs> with that kind of power. Well, Eminem would have been number one for another week. <laughs> that, that's, that's still going on, you know. They're just they're doing another two series of it, but obviously now it's in CG. Right. But um, they're producing another two series of the. I think it's like the seventeenth series in uh, in CG, mm-hmm. which is pretty good run, isn't it for for any show? Especially with kids who aren't the most discerning audience, don't you only really need to make like five of them and then just play them on a loop? <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's true. And the stories are kind of similar. To know that they can continue to, to come up with the, the stories and things. And I know that the show evolved into to being a bit more... It had a bit more of an ecological message mm-hmm. um, in, in kind of later series and stuff. It, it now sits alongside other kids' TV classics, such as like Thomas the Tank Engine from like my your generation. Mm-hmm. And earlier shows, obviously, like Bagpuss and stuff. If you were to have like a Hall of Legends... You'd have Bob there next to next to Thomas, I'd say. Before she worked for, for Hot Animation, she she worked for Cosgrove Hall, primarily directing The Wind in the Willows and, and Oh Mr. Toad and uh, and Truckers, what was adapted from Terry Pratchett. Oh. So yeah, quite the history. It's fascinating to have been able to sit down with her and, and talk about her kind of journey through animation. Well then let's uh, let's have a listen, shall we? Can you tell us a little bit about the kind of evolution of Cosgrove Hall and how yeah. you're involved? I was only with them for a year um, because everything, it went bust basically, the company that owned Stockframe. And Brian and Mark said, can you give us time to um, get some backers? We want to set up another company. And um, I found a job as a trainee assistant editor with the BBC. And I, I did that for a year. And then I got the call and they said, um, right, we've got the backing, we need to look for a building. And we drove around, I can't remember if it was Brian's car or Mark's car, and we drove around and we ended up in Chalton and that was where we found the building that, that used to be the sweet dis- distribution place and became the, the home of Cosgrove Hall for a long time. Excellent. Right there at the beginning then? I was right there at the beginning, yes. Um, I remember it very, very well and it was incredibly exciting to walk into this building and then turn it into not just Stop Frame Studios but Drawn Studios 
and they they ran in parallel with each other which I think is really rare mm-hmm. um, but it was great and it, when you say it was like a family and everybody goes yeah right it really was genuinely like a family because we all grew up together because we were all in our 20s and I was with Brian and Mark for 21 years at Cosgrove Hall wow and it was very very special yeah you worked a lot with the um, Wind in the Willows franchise and uh, yes. uh, Oh No, Mr. Toad. Um, yeah. Was that more uh, Mark's side of things, the, yes. the stop frame side yeah, of things? Yeah, Mark was very much stop frame and Brian the drawn. Um, but the first show I worked on there was Chalton and the Wheelies and I worked as um, an animator on Chalton. And, th- and then that was at the time where we, we filmed on film, obviously. We didn't have uh, any bar sheets. We had no video assist. There was just you and a camera and um, puppets and so we literally had stopwatches and we were timing it from the script to work out how long we needed to to do things and all the camera moves were done by hand we marked off masking tape and we we stuck it around the lens to get our pull focuses and and we we built this very strange thing out of metal with an arrow to get zooms and again we marked it out with masking tapes I mean it really was that basic back then excellent and we made our own tracking benches to get um, camera moves. Again, marked it all out with masking tape. Excellent, um, like some kind of professor's workshop. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it was great. Brilliant. So you went from animator and and, uh, and working behind the scenes and uh, to directing. Yeah. I mean, uh, so as the studio started to evolve, you found your role evolving as well. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, well, when I was um, animating, I did enjoy it, but... I found myself getting a bit frustrated and thinking, ah, I wouldn't have used that shot, I would have done this. And I, I wanted to direct. And I, I just went to Mark and said, I would really like to learn to direct. And he said, OK. And, um, and I did. I learned my craft um, literally on the hoof. Excellent. Yeah. And then did you take up writing as well? Yeah, well, it, they, they kind of go together. You know, you, you, you're getting scripts in and you're working with the writer and... Um, changing things, working on characterisation, developing stories and plot lines, and it's, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, from your uh, Cosgrove Hall days, is there any particular standout show or uh, period that, which you look back on uh, most fondly? I think Truckers for me was the, the standout show um, because it, it came from a, the trilogy of books, Truckers, Diggers, and Wings, and it was a fantastic story about a rite of passage for these little gnomes who eventually flew away on Concord. And um, we worked with Terry Pratchett, and he was great. He would ring after the transmission of every episode to tell me what he thought. <laughs> and, and, and he was lovely. He was, um, he was very complimentary, but then he also gave very good notes as well. And you could ring him up and ask him questions about things. But it was a great story because, for the first time, we actually dealt with death because the abbot died, and it was very moving. And the, that, the, the story of those characters was, it was very deep compared to normal preschool topics. Mm-hmm. It was a big story. And, and I was very proud of it after we'd finished. And we had to work out how to film the animation alongside of live action. And we had to slow the live action down and slow the dialogue of the human characters down. Because to a gnome, they didn't hear our voices the way that we say that. To them, everything was very slow. And so we were working on projection with animation in front of it, and it was really exciting working out how to do it. Mm-hmm. Excellent. No, no, no computers, nothing digital to help you. 
Well, it's back to the uh, professor's workshop kind of, uh, you know, learning and and evolving the process as as it goes along. Um, Could you tell us how the opportunity uh, presented itself for for Hot Animation and and Bob the Builder? Yeah. um, In 1992, Thatcher decided to... uh, well, she, she got really angry because Thames TV had made the programme about Gibraltar and The Rock, which was very critical of her government. And so she decided that all the channels, including Thames TV, would have to apply for the right to broadcast. And thus the franchises came about. Thames lost their franchise. We all got made redundant. And when it set up again, it set up with different backers. But it was a changed company. And as the years went on, I just became more and more unhappy um, with with the way it was managed really which is not Brian and Mark's fault and then um, I worked on a show called Brambley Hedge which was hit entertainment and I produced it and I really enjoyed working with them and Peter Orton who was the uh, head of hit just took me to one side one day and he said um, how would you like to set up a stop frame animation studio and I said I'd love to actually <laughs> and he said well I'd love you too for us set up I said really he said yeah I said okay and um, so he put up the money um, I found the premises we started off with one studio and 25 people we ended up with six studios and over 100 people and um, we did the second four Brambley Hedge episodes and then um, Bob the Builder brought to me and a pilot had been done by another company I think it was Ealing Ealing Animation and um, they wanted me to take it and redevelop it and design it, get it all together, cast it and get it onto television and that's what I did. Excellent. Um, Obviously Bob the Builder was a a huge success. Mm. Could you ever begin to pinpoint what makes a successful stop-frame animation? I think it's pretty impossible to say, you know, it's, it's like a recipe. You can have a list of ingredients, but it doesn't mean to say that that's going to be a great recipe and the end product's going to be great. Mm-hmm. I think it involves so many things. It's got to be the right time, the right people. It's got to click with the audience. And I always say that you, you, you have to make a show from the heart. You have to want to tell that story. And... I wanted it to look different to the shows that were already out there and I, I wanted to work with Curtis. I said, come on, come on, let's sit down, let's let's get a new look for this show. Like a very this graphic is Curtis Jobling. Curtis Jobling, yeah. I said, I want, to, I want a very graphic look. I want kids to feel like they want to step into the television and be with Bob and ride on those machines. So I want the machines to be very flexible, very appealing, good fun. They need to be able to do a lot of things. They can't just be lumps of machinery. They've got to be really expressive. So we need to work on the eyes, we need to work on the, the mouths, how, they, how they're going to speak. And it, it was a very uh, detailed um, way that I wanted to work on it. And I wanted it to capture kids' imaginations. I wanted them to feel that they could be a Bob or a Wendy and create things, build things. And so it covered quite a few things. And then... As the series grew and the characters grew, we got the chance to relocate from Bobsville into Sunflower Valley, and we got the chance to do some eco-building, and that was brilliant. We did, like, straw bell houses and things. And I thought, 
this is great because I really want kids to know about these things and, and think, oh wow, do I have, have to build a house out of bricks? I can build it out of straw bales. So it was fun for us. We did loads of research and we were all just really excited about it. So it's uh, obviously an educational side which you need to push across with kids stuff as well. It can't all be fun, um, although it can be fun, it, it can present an educational side of things as well. Yeah, I think it's nice if kids can learn things but actually don't realise they are learning it. Yes. I don't like preaching to kids at all. Um, I want them to feel like they found it. Mm-hmm. Excellent. One of the uh, one of the uh, other franchises that the, the studio uh, put together mm. was um, Pingu, yes. uh, which was based on an original Swiss series. Yeah. Did you find uh, yourself having to change that series slightly, or was the was it just basically continuing where uh, it originally left off? Well, it was a, a brilliant opportunity. I mean, when I think none of us thought we would ever get to do anything with Pingu we'd all loved it and watched it for years with beautiful claymation and uh, and it's it's absolutely brilliant Pingu so when I hit bought Pingu uh, everything was shipped to us so all the original models all the sets we we worked out how he'd worked out all the um, replacement animation which was a quite an exercise in itself working out how he'd got all that fluid movement but what we needed to do was find a different way of manufacturing the puppets so that there was we could up the production values basically and, and speed up the production otherwise we'd never be, afford, be able to afford to make it in the way that Otmar had made it mm-hmm. and he'd pretty well done it all himself um, so we worked with McKinnon and Saunders to work out a new way of making the Pingu characters so that they still involved replacement animation but the puppets weren't wholly made of plasticine it was just the wings and um, various other bits that we needed to do special things with Um, and likewise with the sets they they were literally just plasticine and couldn't keep them clean so all the white plasticine yeah Yeah. which which got greyer and greyer as (laughs) as the episodes went on so we we investigated new materials found the right material um, that, that would still give us the same look but the wear and tear would be there and we'd be able to work at an efficient speed, basically. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Um, but it, w- it was a joy to work on. And, and we also um, we had to work out the language of Pingu to record the voice artists. And we found these amazing people. One was a clown. Um, and we learnt Pinguinese, <laughs> which was brilliant. And then we had to find a musician who could give us the feel of the music that Pingu had so that it was kind of a tribute to the original Pingu so that if you turned it on you would think how dare they this is terrible how dare they do that to Pingu but would watch it and think oh this is great excellent um, and I, I am very proud of Pingu I thought I thought it worked really well well it's obviously nice to create something uh, original like Bob but obviously yeah. to uh, recreate lovingly recreate yeah. that without having to add extras or you know there was nothing wrong with Pingu no, and you just added, you know, plus it. Yes. Yeah, excellent. No, you've got it in a nutshell. There was absolutely nothing wrong with Pingo. It, it was a sheer joy, and we wanted it to be a continuing sheer joy so that kids would have lots more episodes to watch. Brilliant. Well, and adults too. <laughs> <laughs> um, so from um, Hot and Hit, uh, you went moved over to uh, Ardman yes. uh, to begin Timmy Time. Yes. Now, the thing I like about Timmy Time is that it's a spin-off of a spin-off, yeah. which, I always <laughs> like, which I always like to say. It's always fun. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean... How how did you sort of come around with with this notion and 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 how did you kind of handle it? Um, 
well, I was brought in to develop um, a preschool slate for Ardman because they never worked in preschool. <laughs> and um, I walked through the door and I was handed Timmy, the, the Timmy puppet from Sean, a tiny little lamb. And literally, do you think you could do something with him? So I took him away and I thought, yeah, I'm sure I could. And uh, in literally in two weeks, I had written the scenario because I'd, I'd watched Sean and I thought, if that lamb continues hanging around those sheep, he's going to end up in Borstal. <laughs> no, no doubt about it, he's just going to get into big trouble. <laughs> so I thought, I need to sort of pull him out of there and take him to nursery and let him mix with kids of his own age. Yes. Um, and so that's what I did. Um, yeah. and I, I didn't want to work with dialogue. Um, I'd, I'd really enjoyed working on Pingo where there wasn't dialogue, words as such. Mm-hmm. And I thought... Oh, this would be much more fun um, to just use barks and quacks and things. And, Excellent. Um, and then I got to play uh, Yabber as well, which was brilliant. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. And, and also, um, I wanted to explore what it was like to go to, to nursery when you're little, and it can be quite a scary thing. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want kids to be scared about going to nursery. I wanted them to have fun like Timmy did. And uh, t- Timmy was kind of an extension of me, going to nursery like he, he did get into a lot of trouble but he didn't mean to and he he's, he had a good heart mm-hmm. <laughs> excellent so creating things with the with the children in mind as opposed from just running away with this idea well, you, you have to have a show that your audience can relate to um, and although I've I've kind of always made shows for me because I, I love watching preschool and um, it just seemed to kind of work um, I don't know I, I just Mm-hmm. It felt right, and um, when I sat down with kids and they were watching it, they were captivated, so I thought, yeah, that works. Excellent. Obviously, huge success as well. It was a, a huge success. Yes. Yeah, yeah, excellent. So you said they're voice artists. We, we, we started off as, a, as an animator and artist, moved on to um, script editing. We've, we've been through uh, directing, yeah. writing, producing. Yeah. Everything. I mean, tell us uh, how it feels to um, progress through animation in this way. And, and when you look back at the at the sort of career you've had, I mean, mm. is there any particular highlights? Would you say, I, I'm a born producer, I'm a born director, I'm a born animator? No. I would say that I was a, a creator of programmes. And um, I had never actually sat down and thought, right, well, I'm going to, I'm gonna, I'm going to end up there. I was just making programs and and I did what I needed to do to make what I was what I was making and I was learning the craft and I think um it's great to work in all the different disciplines because if you're producing something you need to know what the prop maker's doing you need to know how long it takes them to make something you need to know about materials to be a good producer you need to know that to be a good director you need to know it to be a good animator all oh, they're all complementary to each other so to me it was just a very natural progression Excellent. Well, uh, Jackie Cockle, thank you very much for uh, talking to Squiggly today. And, uh, yeah, enjoy the evening. Thank you very much. That was Jackie Cockle, who we were fortunate enough to meet up with at the British Animation Awards the other month. Very interesting sort of career case study there, Mm -hmm. I think. It's nice to see the kind of... um, A story where somebody goes from success to success to success to success Mm. and still has time to talk to Squiggly, which is nice. (laughs) (laughs) It's been a pretty productive month for Squiggly, or for yourself at least, Ben. Tirelessly editing away our latest venture, really, uh, uh, trying to breathe a little bit of life into our YouTube channel, 
with a, a series of mini documentaries. Lightbox. You know, my sort of natural response, which I think is probably the same as most people, is that, oh, Squiggly has a YouTube channel? Yeah. That was one of the sort of relics of the, the old days of Squiggly that just has kind of been sitting there for a while. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, as I'm sure... A lot of the people who uh, who are listening to this know we do. Uh, we also do video content, put up some mini documentaries and not so mini documentaries. And uh, what I've definitely learned is that the mini documentaries are much easier <laughs> in terms of you know time demands. And um, the problem with longer documentaries, because there should have been one that hasn't uh, materialized. What tends to sort of happen is if there are sort of rights clearance issues that you know one or two people involved have an issue with that then holds up the entire documentary so mm-hmm. doing things in a more kind of episodic short form way i think is sort of more likely to get a lot of the coverage we put together out there quicker more regularly i'd love to do it once a week or once every couple of weeks you know maybe even more frequently we could you know sort of do it a couple of week if it's sort of a busy time but you know i think that it's the kind of thing that works well with animation obviously because animation deserves to be represented on screen you know i think it's great to do our sort of longer interviews on this podcast but it's also nice to get some time with them and then actually see what it is they're talking about rather than the old youtube vimeo hunt uh, mm-hmm. which is sort of just part and parcel of the whole nature of, of podcasting so you can subscribe on our squiggly youtube channel which i have to look up the url for because <laughs> i still don't here we go youtube.com slash user slash squiggly magazine there you go this this has been a, a, a squiggly segment brought to you by squiggly yeah <laughs> it's nice that, nice that we sponsor ourselves now <laughs> uh so we'll put up uh, i'm sure we'll put up other video stuff up there as we have sort of done sporadically in the past. But yes, Lightbox for the time being is the first venture, so keep your eyes skinned for more. So, so far we have uh, some interviews with people like uh, the beloved Joanna Quinn, Tim O'Sullivan, the co-creator of Sarah and Duck, uh, directors like Gurgly Woosh, Gurgly Woosh, I, one of them is probably right. <laughs> and uh, recently, National Film Board of Canada directors Theodore Ushev, and Toral Cove, and uh, so plenty more where that came from. But uh, yes, check it out. Squiggly Magazine on YouTube. Now here's some more of our working in animation panel discussion at the recent Bristol Comics Expo. This one's mostly for the freelancers. Anybody freelancers? How do you make it freelance, please? (laughs) (laughs) Talk to people. Talk to people. Just keep talking to people even if it seems like it's not going anywhere well, I remember mm. when you were setting up Iontown didn't you arrange a meeting with the mayor of Merthyr Merthyr did probably he was rubbish <laughs> oh really yeah. he didn't do it it was nothing in that but again it was like yeah it was just it was a two and a half hour journey on the train <laughs> from door to door in the morning so I would just like be mailing people and you know yeah. arranging to meet them or something so you're or, just telling everybody about your idea yeah, and, and sometimes it's, it's just having an idea that maybe isn't going to go anywhere, but it's something to talk about, to, 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 to sit down with. Yeah. It just so happened that I just really want, I really like this idea and, and I need, I want it to go somewhere. But it, it's just a way of getting in and what I found there was I, I met lots and lots of people in like different areas, businesses, departments, and then maybe like a couple of months down the line, they would, you know, if you've done it successfully enough, they would 
project would come up and go, oh, that'd be cool if that was animation. Oh, we could Gareth ring oh, and yeah, then, you know, she got a, you know, I got jobs off the back of that then, you know. So what were you pitching to the mayor when the, you went to meet? The, I got, we, we're making a game, it's like, it's like Red Dead Redemption, if you know it, but set in Merthyr Tidville during the Industrial Revolution, <laughs> but without without the pro it's an educational game, so it's without the prostitutes and killing people and things like that. So, but it. Does it have any horses? Yeah, it's got horses. Oh, it's, got, okay, it's, got, yeah, it's got chickens. Chickens. Yeah. It's on a farm at the moment. It's Are you going to do like a zombie DLC as well? Yeah, that'd be yeah, great. Cool. Yeah, but yeah. I would just set it in modern times. Cause that's what kind of was like that, you know. So, but um. Yeah, so 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 I just been pushing that, and we managed to get uh, the first chapter made. So we that's out to the end of the month. But again, it's a, it's an educational thing, so it probably won't be much fun. But it's all about. I'm quite interested in the history of where I'm from, and I like that my town is in the past was like a cultural heritage. So we were centre of writing production in the world, you know, and there's a lot of people in the town that doesn't know that don't know that. So I'm quite interested in teaching it via via interactive media, you know, which I think is the future. But that, that's what's really good about now, because when I graduated from college, it was all, like university, it was all, you had to make a physical VHS copy yeah. of your showreel and then post that to everyone, and that cost a lot of money and all. I was telling the students yeah. about that the other day, and they were just looking at me with a blank face, <laughs> as, like as if to say, what's a VHS? You've got so many tools that, to help you, um, you know, where you can put your stuff on Vimeo and things yeah. like that, but also yeah. things like Twitter are great, because mm. you can find so many, like, companies or people to send showreels to and also you know you can just slowly build up a sort of a little bit of a following and but Twitter is a great tool yeah. as well because they're also you'll find that companies will will tweet oh I've got a job opening yeah. somewhere like before they'll put it on their um, websites or things like yeah. that and often they won't go up on the websites at all yeah, it's, it's they'll just, just tweet it and then the right time retweet it and things like that mm -hmm. so it, you know it's easier to get your face or your work known a bit to more more to people and it's easier then for you know in some circumstances to work remotely as well yeah. so you can end up working for a company in Scotland or anywhere yeah if they if they do remote working and things like that how about you, Kerry? How does it differ being a model maker than an animator? Like, how do you get your um, physical things? I don't. Yeah. I don't think it really differs that much. It's. I've. I've got a, a website with all my work on it. Um. You know, you can send files to people via Dropbox or just if if, you know, if they're really little, you can email them to people. I. I tend to. Every couple of months, I call around all of the companies that I know of and all my contacts and email all my new stuff and say hey this is what I've been I've been working on um, I'm starting a job on Monday that um, is at a company that I've been in touch with for five years and I, I only started working for them at the start of this year on stuff you know and it's, and it's all uh, as a freelancer anyway it's, I find it's all very last minute because I got this call yesterday about the job starting on Monday so I didn't know what I was doing next week mm -hmm. it, and it just sort of appeared out of nowhere but it's like I say it's been I think I think it's five years I've been calling back and forth just seeing and it always helps to put that kind of put your hobby stuff out there as well. Yeah. The fun stuff. Cool. Ben, you've had quite a long freelance career. Yeah, I think I'd, I'd reinforce what Jane just said about uh, how much social media can help and uh, keep people sort of communicating with each other and keep people aware of what everyone's doing at any given time. 
I think actually my first sort of serious gig was exactly those circumstances you just sort of outlined, where you know something was sort of put up. It was a small remote thing for a few months, and um, that, in a lot of respects, I think was the first sort of step of, of things, kind of snowballing from that. Um, and then you know the more studio work you get, the more people you meet. So networking events, uh, the festivals are a great one. You know, there's uh, in Bristol. There's I, I don't know if they still do the West of Us and showing yeah, the animation. Yeah, They're always good. Yeah, mm. um, lots of stuff up in London, and you know, mm. and yeah, just sort of online stuff. Do you I go mean. to London a lot to attend a networking event that might possibly not be on your doorstep? More so now, I think. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think now since I've kind of been at more sort of international festivals, where as soon as you're out of England then anyone that you meet who's also from England becomes your friend for that festival. You know? um, and they can be sort of from way further away than you would have... Exactly. <laughs> well, the idea is, yeah, hopefully they'll, they'll help you out with, you know, getting over there. Um, uh, but the festivals are sort of doing that less and less nowadays. But um, uh, that can sort of help broaden, I think, your, your sort of networking pool, I suppose. Um, and then also people who, you know, work in Europe or the States or Canada that sort of tend to come over to England or work remotely on sort of collaborative projects, that kind of thing. Cool. I think it just sort of helps to, to not limit who you expose yourself to. And uh, for the most part, everyone's pretty interesting and decent. And it's not a very arrogant, unpleasant, backstabby line of work for the most part when I hear stories of people in other industries, you know, catching up with people who went different ways. It's like, I, this was a, an okay choice to make as far as freelancing goes. Mm-hmm. So be a good guy. <laughs> uh, you have to be a good guy, just not a complete guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How do you get in the zone when you are working? Let's say you're freelancing from home and you've been at it for weeks. How do you switch it on? For me, I like to put on a silly hat. <laughs> yeah, you have, you have I a hat? feel like I'm dressed up for the occasion and I sit down and get on with it. What kind of hat is it? Just I've got like three different hats and a pick one. <laughs> I, I wish I was joking. Hats got me through you. I would like to see these hats. <laughs> I can't work from home. You can't? No. Two two kids. Oh cool. Can't do that. Yeah. So, I, so you've I, got your own office. I rented place. I rented a hot desk <laughs> in a local business park. It was really cheap. Cool. And uh, I just I just went down there and locked myself in the room. And from, you know, did my work day. So you've got that separate business yeah. family thing. Cool. And I've got a little office under the stairs, like Harry Potter oh. thing. So <laughs> but I kept bumping my head. So. <laughs> Anyone else? How do you get in the zone? Listening to music on headphones. And this music when I'm here. Mine's talk radio. If oh, podcasts. Yeah, I listen yeah. to a lot of podcasts. I, I like if I'm working from home. I like to feel like I'm not alone. Yeah, <laughs> that there's yeah. someone talking. Yeah, it's like friends yeah. In the background. yeah. definitely. Music, no. Can't, can't animate to music. What about soundtracks? Movie soundtracks is good. Possibly, like instrumental stuff. Yeah. yeah. Mm. I made my student film while listening to the soundtrack for Hannibal. Mm. That was creepy. It was, but it kind of worked. I don't know. Maybe because I was I was in my on my own in a room for mm-hmm. months on end. Well, that's to get me in a different kind of zone. Uh, there's a cafe next door to mine I like to go to. It's not often the best place to work, but sometimes it sort of gets me into gear. Um, so you, just do you work there or do you just go there for a break? Sometimes I work there. So okay. if it's, if I, if it depends on what I need to do. If it's just sort of drawing in concepts, it can just take a sketchbook. Um, 
uh, now I have a sort of portable setup, so I can, if I wanted to, I could probably take actually all my kit and sit in the corner, but that looks a bit mm. creepy. Mm-hmm. Um, you bought one cup of coffee. Yeah, just having to sit there for five hours. Yeah, I think sort of just sort of basic anything you can do on a laptop, like any sort of After Effects stage of production. So it sort of depends on what stage of production you're in. It sort of depends on what kind of project it is. It's very sort of compositing heavy, or like you know, just getting things in order for then when you have to later on do the actual bulk of the work. Then mm-hmm. yeah, that's usually I'll sort of just get out of the because it is mostly remote work is is what I do. So. I can. I have a, an office area, and that's that's fine. And usually, when you're up against a deadline, you don't have a choice about being in a zone. You just yeah, have to yeah, be there, okay. zone or not. And and if you're not like mentally sort of in the headspace, well, then you're just going to have a, a bad day. But you got to do it. Um, I, I do have like to touch upon a point you just made. I do have a corner of my bedroom that is like the work bit. Like, mm-hmm. I, I live in a bedroom <laughs> and I've got like my, my computer and all my animation stuff on the wall around it and I know it's wood and that's like where work happens and everything else is like I've got comics corner too mm. do you have like that do you have that separate business work workspace kind of yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. the desk important. end of the room well, I've got that and I've got a shed outside because I have to keep all the chemicals somewhere <laughs> but um, yeah I've got I've got loads of uh, and kind of all my comics are over in that corner of the room yeah. as well it's just all the stuff that isn't uh, relaxing, I suppose. Yeah. Stuff that takes effort. It's it's over yeah. all over there. Yeah. It is a dumb bit. And then you just find what works for you. Because I, I also worked with another animator who always played videos like movies in yeah. the bottom corner, and that's how he worked best. Mm. I couldn't do that. It's yeah. happening a lot. That is now just because, yeah, you know just most animators. Yeah, I can work with. They've got like films playing or actual tutorials running. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's great for those. If you get one of those Wacom Cintiq yeah. tablets that are meant to be sort of animated on, but they're also just great for playing Netflix yeah. on, <laughs> sort of non-drawing things. Put an iPad by the side. Um, what are you most proud of that you've worked on so far? Barbie. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm pr- I'm I'm most proud that I am so loud with my kids. Yeah, because that was that was my first judge of my first year if I get through my first year as a freelancer without yeah. having to resort to selling <laughs> so I'd, be the kid. Kid, I'd be happy <laughs> and I could make some money because one of them was ginger and I reckon <laughs> if I sold him further away <laughs> so that was always the thing which one Sophie's choice which one's going <laughs> I, think, I think for me it was the Lushkin thing yeah. like, purely because there was just two of us doing that because yeah. everything I've done before it's been a big collaboration between so many people that every, every you know there's so many aspects of everything but I think with that it was just two of us and it was just very controlled yeah and it's why I've, I've been, I'm doing another one um been doing it for a while now but it's just it's just to have something that you know you release yeah yeah, yeah. it's just a bit more personal I guess mm. so personal works high up there right well, I think it's yeah. it's more of a personal pride when it's it's yeah. when it comes from yourself. Yeah. You can be proud of working with people and and be sort of proud of like the team effort and things like that. Yeah. But it's it, I think it's less uh, popular to admit to personal pride because people who haven't done those types of things tend to confuse it with arrogance. Yeah. And so I think for the most part, people kind of bite their tongues on yeah. stuff like that. But. Um, you know, so I, I I think that they're sort of different beasts in a way. I think with me it was when I when I left uni 
left the teaching role because the, the, the job that I went on to was working with 10 of my grad uh, guys who would, would graduate then. Oh, yeah. So it was, it was kind of walking in and then you've really got to prove to them then that you can do it and, and that was quite nerve-wracking. It's probably the most nerve-wracking I've ever, nerve-wracking job I've ever had, you know. So then when it started to get accepted then, I thought, well, oh, we can do it actually. Mm -hmm. That was probably it, you know, proving that I can actually do it to other people. Um, what do you geek out about? I guess this is really similar to the, your favourite part of production. Oh, question. Well, what do you geek out about? I've got my my fella is also a, a puppet and prop maker, and when we get home from work, it's kind of like, how did you? How was your day at work, love? Oh, it's great. I moved stuff. What did you do? Oh, I made stuff. And it's like because <laughs> we know each other's industries so well. That's about as much as we ever get into each. Other. Like we don't need to talk about it much more than that. But one day I got him onto the subject of moulds, and <laughs> I've never seen my fellas prancing around our room. He got like, the graph paper out, he was like drawing <laughs> pictures, like one, and like, I was like, I don't remember what he said. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> something about air release or something, and he was just so excited, and I was like, oh my gosh, that's the thing that Ian geeks out about. That's amazing. <laughs> like, it's his, for him, it's moulds. For me, facial animation. I absolutely adore good facial animation and I love watching people talk. If I'm talking to you, I'm probably watching your lips and where your bottom lip naturally settles against your bottom teeth or something. I, I, asymmetry, I love, I love asymmetry in like, especially um, the film Paranorman or the, the faces in that film. But, so facial animation is what I geek out about. What do you geek out about? I think just generally, nice animation because yeah, I'm, I'm like you know I, I started being a traditional animator mm. so when I actually see some really nice crafted traditional sort of but it can be like in flash or anything like that can it be CG yep it mm. totally can but when there's just some really nice you know it could be something simple from a little gesture or something big like some like great big like even even I do like effect animation when it's done drawn. I do geek out about. Oh that. my gosh! Yeah, and I know what you mean. Start off then. No, yeah, I get. I, I've seen. Yeah, yeah, I know that. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, when you look at it, you're like, like an explosion and things like yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. My wife says she knows. She knows when I'm about to lose it if we go to, the, to watch the film because I I just start to go. <laughs> and my wife just again shifts. She she started putting the kids in the way. You know, she went to the cinema it's like oh, me, yeah. kid, kid, wife. <laughs> Anyone else? What do you think about? Kind of like the sort of conceptual art behind projects. Oh, cool, yeah. Um, and video games as well. I'm not really a big gamer, but I've have a few sort of books on on certain sort of niche games and things like that. And the level of, of work that goes into creating a sort That's of visual world is. And then sometimes I'll go on and play the game, and the game actually is a bit of a letdown. Mm -hmm. Unless you're just kind of looking at all the things. Mm -hmm. Also, that's how they've applied that and this and this. Um, and uh, I mean, in most of those types of books, they're usually for Pixar films or DreamWorks films mm -hmm. that I'm not going to have much of an interest in as much. But you know, for every like you know five to ten of them, there'll be one that will appeal to that sort of little. What's your favorite author book then? Um. I think probably at the moment it's a, it was I don't think it was a very successful game. It was called um, uh, Alice Madness Returns, and it was a video game. It was a sequel to a very good video game from like 15 years ago, 
Um, Mark McGee's Alice. Yeah. yeah. And that was, that would have had a lovely awesome book too, but they didn't do them back then. And it's kind of like if you can imagine Tim Burton doing Alice in Wonderland, but mm-hmm. not when he did Alice yeah. in Wonderland. <laughs> yeah. Like the yeah. Beetlejuice Tim Burton doing it. Okay. Um, and so they put in a lot of work into creating this video game. And then I, I got the game. It's like one of the only games I got that year, and it was basically just jumping on things. And it was Aww. a bit because the first game was really complex and interesting. Um, they kind of perhaps relied too much on the visuals selling it, maybe. And maybe that's the danger of the way things are. But it's not like video games are flagging. It's, it's an industry, so. Yeah, they're not dead. Um, so I think that was sort of the main one in the last few years. Yeah. Cool. Kerry, okay, do you have anything that you geek out with? You've got a mold story for me. Well, it's not, it's not really about animation, but um, I watch a lot of making of uh, DVD extras and that kind of stuff. I, I, wa- I watched recently the, uh, the ones from the first Hobbit film. And, and just all of the the detailed casting. I mean, it's it's close to what I do. I, I could do the mold making bit. Once they get into actually fitting it to a person and artworking it and painting it and making it all look real, that that baffles me. That bit. Mm-hmm. I'd like to have a go at that at some point. Yeah. But I, I just yeah, making of DVD special feature stuff. Awesome. Love it. Uh, I'm going to do one last question because I've got absolutely no idea what time it is. Um, one. One, one piece of advice. Be sponge, learn. Yeah, sponge. Good one. And take advice. You don't have to follow it, but you can take it and listen. That's a lot more than one, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, try stuff that's outside of your comfort zone. If you've got one area that you specialise in, try try some, some other skills around that specialism. Cool. Um, so I, at the moment I'm learning ZBrush because I want to do 3D printing. Um, well, I've got a 3D printer. I'm, I'm printing stuff. But it's not very good right now, but um, it's it's sort of similar to what I do in that it's sculpting, it's but on the, yeah, but it's not really part of how I work at the so moment. But it could be. Learning. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's kind of the same as James, really. Yeah. <laughs> Anyone else? Don't take rejection personally, because um, it's going to happen a lot, and you can be very, very good, and you can be the best, perhaps. Yeah. Isn't that? I don't speak for myself, but I know people who I know should have gotten certain things that didn't, and a lot of it's just sort of circumstantial, but when it comes to festivals or job interviews or anything that requires a submissions process, in life in general, usually it just sort of means that, you know, it wasn't the right time in the right place. And the best way to sort of deal with it is like for every rejection, sort of double your efforts for the next thing. And then, you know, you'll end up being more motivated and applying to more things, and then the number of stuff that actually comes through starts to snowball mm-hmm. after a while. So. Cool. I think it's just want, want that, really, you know, re- just want that and, and work for it because it's, it's, it is an industry that's getting hard, that is getting more saturated and when I was when I was in new college, the same with Jane because I was only a few years below Jane, is that there were, there were only 11 courses in the UK that did animation, you know, so it was quite it was a lot easier to get a job than now there's like 143 Oh, it's weird the way I know that, I think. Well, it's weird. Mm. It's you know, yeah, well, yeah, it's part of my job, but they're kicking out 30 to 40 to 50 students every year, you know? So, it's every year, so you've got, to, you've got to have something about you that takes you to the top of that, not to the top of that pile, but around the top. You don't have to be the top of the pile, you don't have to be fantastic, but I think they need to see something in you that you, you know, you're willing to see out these long-term projects or these silly nights or when the shot's not working, you know, when Dan's tail isn't swishing properly or when that mm. 
bloody dinosaurs kicking a football or, <laughs> you know and you've got and, and so they've got to see that you're willing to put the time in to do yeah. that and it doesn't always work but they just need to see something new that you're willing to go that little bit you know no brilliant well thanks for thanks for coming thanks for the panel So, thanks very much to Danny Abram for getting that discussion organised. You can find out more about her work at dannyabram.blogspot.co.uk. Jane Davis is at upstartthunder.co.uk. Gareth Kavanagh's on Twitter at GarethCav, that's C-A-V. And Kerry Dyer's very impressive model-making work can be seen at kerrydyer.wordpress.com. And, of course, I'm at ben-mitchell.co.uk. Yep. In case you're wondering, this is me seething with jealousy, Ben. I see. Yes. Yeah, so why are you seething, my friend? Well, apart from the usual reasons, I'm seething because <laughs> you managed to go to Annecy this year, and I didn't. Ah, well, in, technically speaking, that's seething with envy. Right, okay. Jealousy would be worrying that I didn't come back, that you lost me to Annecy forever. I wouldn't do that to you, Steve. <laughs> I'm not a monster. Well, thanks for that, and thanks for uh, sorting my English out. <laughs> well, you know what? I mean, you were better off not coming because the weather was absolutely miserable. Go on. Just torrential storms every day, sheltering for warmth and dryness at every given moment. You know, just a, a horrendous, horrendous time, as everyone who was there, I'm sure, will agree. Right. I don't think we saw the sunshine once. I don't think we got one opportunity to gamble and frolic with abandon in the beautiful crystal clear lake. <laughs> Am I selling any of this You're at all? You're making me feel a lot better, although you're making it sound a lot more like Bradford than, uh, than Annecy. It was a little overbearing in the sense that we could have done with at least one drop of rain <laughs> by like day four. Yeah. Holy sh**. Enough with this big glowing orb in the sky. Who have we made angry? <laughs> is it, have they still got that enormous tin can? Is that still stifling? The tin? Do you mean the uh, the Harris? For the screenings. Yes. Yeah, for screenings. Yeah, that was actually... Um, it could have been a little cooler, but like given the circumstances, that was quite a nice little place to, to you know, retreat from the sunlight. But uh, skewing outside? Oh, f*** that. <laughs> <laughs> and if it's a big event, everyone will queue mm-hmm. for like 45 minutes to get in. And it's like, well, okay, we could do that. Or we could stand to one side in the shade and watch people queue. And then when they open the doors, we'll just sort of sneak in amongst the throng, <laughs> which isn't the most moral way of doing it. It's not the most British way. The thing is, given the circumstances, I mean, we were there as press. We have coverage to bring you. You know, if we miss out, we're not just letting down our listeners, but we're letting down the animation industry in general. <laughs> so technically, it was our obligation to push people out of the way. Yeah, just batting them out of the way. Press coming through. See, I think I'm getting the hang of this press luck and people just moaning, you know, like, well, I queued here longer or, you know, oh, I, I paid extra or, or I'm pregnant. Shut up. <laughs> you could definitely tell which ones were the biggest draws. Of the, uh, of the festival, just by that sort of yardstick, I suppose. You know, there's the obvious stuff, like, of course, Pixar and Disney. Mm-hmm. It's sort of a, an obligation. I guess they probably got the absolute biggest crowds. Actually, just second 
to um, DreamWorks, which was ridiculous. I'll get back to that in a sec. But um, we were talking earlier about the uh, the Big Hero Six and uh, what that's shaping up to look like. And uh, one of the other things that they presented the Disney people was the the short film that goes with that, and that's absolutely lovely. It's about a sort of Boston Terrier who uh, is it's his life story as told through significant meals. It was really, really very sort of sweet and Disney-ish, you know, in a kind of like, aw, you know. But also just like, wow, great f***ing animation. Yeah. <laughs> Which I think is like the Disney slogan at this point. Great f***ing animation. <laughs> That's above the door, isn't it, as you go in? Is that Feast? Yeah. Yeah. So we'll have an interview with those guys soon. Not in this episode. I'm afeard. We're waiting for the old sign-off. But, you know, I liked Paper Man and I liked get a horse but this one is just i don't know it just sort of appealed i think more to to me and individually as someone who likes a f- lots of food and b sort of cute little dogs so <laughs> and yeah of course uh, pixar as well doing their thing their film looks pretty interesting yeah i heard very positive mumblings um obviously we we're saying that the the animation industry in pixar's absence looks a little kind of uh interesting you know it looks like new new people are, are coming around and uh Pixar appear to have been going through a little bit of a kind of uh, a bit of a dull moment, you know, releasing films that don't quite have the same kind of uh, imagination or uh, or scope as previous films, you know, back in the the nineties, early two thousands. I've heard they're they're back to the best. I mean, what would you say? I'd agree. Well, yeah, I think that that's a pretty fair assessment. I kind of felt like, well, a lot of people are sort of always gung-ho about Pixar and everything, you know, and I, I like them, they're good, but I, the last Pixar film that I really, really enjoyed was probably Toy Story 3 or Ratatouille, one of those, um, mm-hmm. and since then, they've, I mean, what's, what's happened since then, there's been, um, Brave, Toy, uh, Cars 2, you know, stuff that a lot of people do like, but, um, it hasn't quite scratched my particular itch. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. This one, I think, really does from the premise of it and from looking at the sort of early footage of it. I mean, it has Lewis Black in it, so automatically I'll give it a go because mm-hmm. I I love that man so much. I've seen some garbage films that he's been in just because he's been in them. He's one of those shouty comedians that will only ever be sort of relegated to one type of role, um, which is kind of shouty, angry guy. So fittingly, in, in this film, uh, Inside Out, he plays anger as a as a character, and it's a, the main sort of ensemble caster is there's a crew of emotions at the helm of this little girl who's about to go through puberty, and um, the pre adolescent stroppiness devolving into that sort of sulky behaviour that everyone who's had kids or remembers being a kid is uh, very familiar with. I think it was uh, I think it's Pete Doctor is a chap who. Uh, directed it and came up with the story and it was based on his own daughter sort of going through that stage in her life and he's explained that she knows this and that she's at peace with this being public knowledge right you know and i think every every father every mother you you go from having a sweet kid and then they're just a piece of shit. <laughs> so i guess it's about what sort of happens internally 
emotionally and and how the research that's gone into this film by the way of how like the brain works and synapses and what triggers memory and what deja vu is and all sorts of stuff like that it's really that's the kind of thing that's actually getting me quite excited about it and the film that it reminds me of is one that we're both quite enamored of from last year chris landris film subconscious password where his memories and his thought association and his memory triggers and whatever are sort of represented in his head in his subconscious by the the game show password and so memories and of uh, what people sort of represent are game show contestants and stuff like that this seemed like a kind of like family movie version of that kind of thing very clever use of of what we know about how the mind works. That's, so that's the extra bit. That's the uh, one of the fascinating things I liked about Chris's interview was the way that you would like just talk about how the brain worked. He, he it was like talking to like maybe a brain surgeon or something or a psychologist or or something like that. Well, I would have equated it more with GCSE science. Uh, yes, but still, he's, he's <laughs> not just not talking. go crazy here. I like the <laughs> but, guy, but. <laughs> but but still, I mean, you can interview somebody and they'll talk about animation, which is always fascinating. Uh, but when they talk about something extra and the thing that, that that's hooked them onto this film, I think that's often the difference between a great film and an amazing film. Mm. And that's something that the earlier Pixar films had, uh, the extra twist that made the film so enjoyable and something that I, I would say was missing in, in Brave, which was just a standard princess film. Yeah. So is, is this is is the inside out like the numbskulls? Did you do you used to read the numbskulls in the Beano when you was a kid? Is it all like people running around the brain and things? Or I would say it was. It would probably be more like something like the numbskulls in a kind of. It's an abstracty way of. It's not. They're not being super scientific. Like at one point, um, someone in the audience because they were showing sort of footage and stuff, and the main character is Joy. Uh, it was played by Amy Poehler. But the character of Joy, this kind of orb made up of particles that sort of... They're, they're basically these kind of anthropomorphized little glowy shapes uh. that I have to say I wasn't too impressed with when I saw the, the low-res concept art when it was first released. But when you see it in action, like the way these characters are constructed, it's like their whole bodies are like a contained particle effect. Right. Or maybe it's something they do with the texturing, but it's really lovely to look at. But this character, who's meant to be Joy, isn't constantly joyful. Like, that's her main disposition, but she has her own set of emotions, in a sense, because she has to sort of deal with Sadness, who is a downer, you know. So they're kind of at odds with each other. So Joy gets sort of frustrated. And so someone in the audience was kind of nitpicking at that. I was like, well, if she's Joy, then she should always be joyful. And the book you directed it. It's like, well, for, come on, give me a break. <laughs> it has to. We have to create some kind of character interaction. Yes. You know? From what I can sort of tell, that's sort of the main thrust is the joy and sadness dynamic. And they, I think, get kind of separated from the rest of the group, which is why the girl that they're, whose brain they're in, she's now just being ruled by fear and anger and disgust. Ah. Um, very interesting. So, yeah. It's going to be a fun one, I think. One scene in particular they showed, which is absolutely lovely, was um, it's, I think, the first instance of her losing her shit with her parents. Right. Which everyone, I think, remembers that. And in that, I don't know if it's a recurring thing in the film. I suspect not. But in that particular scene, um, we then look inside the mother's head and the father's head and their own sets of emotions and what they've become as adults. Right. That <laughs> was hysterical. <laughs> Exciting stuff. So so what else did you see at Annecy? 
Lots and lots and lots and lots. I, I completely didn't just blow everything off a neat fondue. Oh, I believe you. Uh, well, well, there was uh, you know lots of interviews and stuff set up. Uh, so yeah, there's keep your eyes and ears open for uh, you know more NSC coverage. There's lots of stuff from our good friends at the NFB and Cartoon Network. And uh, as I mentioned before, there's some Disney coverage and uh, some interesting new developments, things that we have to sort of remain sort of tight-lipped about until we get uh, the all clear. Ooh, tantalizing. Yes. But the other thing I'll talk about briefly, because it's going to be coming out pretty soon, and we'll talk about this more next episode as well. How to Train Your Dragon 2. Go. It's great <laughs> and I kind of I did like the first one and so I saw it on a plane which isn't the best way to see these types of films mm-hmm. but it was not begrudgingly but it was in a kind of like oh this will do and I was like oh this is pretty funny it exceeded I think my expectations from what little I knew about what the film was but yeah this lovely sort of dialogue I think Craig Ferguson is very very funny so I was kind of interested in, in seeing the second one I saw most of it about a month ago at a press screening. And this is what they did. They showed it like not entirely finished, which was odd. Like, I'm not sure if it was like an old copy or if it was genuinely not done at that stage, given that it's about to come out in cinemas. What do you mean? Like renders or or sound missing and stuff? Some of the shots weren't completely lit. Okay. And rendered. So like, and you know, things needed correction and fixing, like, you know, someone clasps their hands and their fingers go through the other hand, you know? Yeah. I don't know, once every 10 minutes you'd get like a couple of those sorts of shots, which didn't really bugger it up. It was still great to watch. And very funny, like everyone in this press room was was really enjoying it. And then just when shit's about to hit the fan, they cut it. Yeah. It's like, okay, so you can see the ending in a month. (laughs) (laughs) What do you expect for free? Exactly. That's how they get you. Yeah. Reel you in. A little taste, just like meth. (laughs) But as good as a reaction as it got at that screening, seeing the whole thing at Annecy was ridiculous. It was kind of like, I mean, because we saw like Monsters U last year. Yeah. That was got a great reaction. Everyone enjoyed it. But this screening was, it was insane. It was like a rock concert. (laughs) It was almost to the point where like, if you didn't know better, you'd think people were taking the piss. If you didn't know that it was a very concentrated group of legitimate animation enthusiasts. So do they sound like the audience in a game show when they all go, ooh, <laughs> when the prizes are revealed? Was it a little bit like that? Kind of, yeah. Like, and stamping their feet and, like, you know, ovation after ovation. And within the film, like, audibly reacting, clapping, to the point where it's like, well, Jesus Christ, guys, take it down a notch. <laughs> And uh, the director, Dean, was there, and I think it was it was great, because he's this really sort of sweet guy, really kind of nice, pleasant fella, who you could tell, I don't think he was expecting quite that sort of rapturous love that was in the room. People were in love with this man mm. by the time he sort of got up to, to take a bow and everything. He could have had anyone in that room. <laughs> now, you've seen the trailer, right? Yes. Yeah. So I'm going to assume everyone who's listening to this had... There's a point in the film, quite early on, where the main character encounters his mother, who he believed to be dead. This is now established. It's known because it's in the trailer. Yeah. And so the reveal is, I think at this point we're supposed to know, but he doesn't know that it's her. And then she notices he has a scar. And then she's like, oh, 
hey, I know you. A little more emotionally than that. Right. And then he's like, how do you know who I am? And she goes, a mother, a mother never forgets or something to that effect. To which point the audience goes f***ing ape shit, <laughs> clapping and cheering. And the, Now, if you think I'm a cynical piece of shit, the guy next to me, who was sort of grousing all the way through the... At that point, when everyone's applauding, that guy goes, Oh, for God's sake, that bit was in the trailer. <laughs> excellent, excellent. I've got this picture of Statler and Waldorf from the Muppets. You know, the two old men <laughs> just sat yeah. there with their heart, having a bit of go at and everyone enjoying themselves. <laughs> there was a point where, like, because it was, it was very sunny as established during the day, and I had... Um, my spray suntan lotion, which was starting to kind of melt off me at the end of the day. And right at one of the sort of emotional, but there were some weepy bits. If you're weepy inclined, I don't think I generally am. But uh, at one point during a quite weepy bit, a bit of this suntan lotion sort of trickled down my forehead and got into my eye. And I was like, for Christ's sake, don't rub your eye. Because then, <laughs> then people will think you're crying. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I just sat there. No, I just sat there with Santa lotion burning my retina. <laughs> God, we take our animated films like men. Exactly. So it sounds like something to look forward to then. I think so. You know what actually is that is to me? Well, A, two main sort of things. Well, I haven't seen it. I won't mind seeing it. And then we can, uh, we can have a, a rabbit on about it then. Cool. Well, then one thing then uh, to look forward to is... Um, uh, the character that Kristen Wiig plays, mm. who I forget the name of the character actually, but she's a twin. It's the two, t- it's like rough and tumble, rough nut and tough nut. There you go. In this one, there's a moment where the character kind of takes a turn, even if it wasn't one of these types of crazy screenings. Like everyone in the audience, sort of is immediately behind it. Right. It's uh, no, she is absolutely astounding in that. Wow. And I, when I say she, I'm not even talking about the actress so much. I'm talking about like whoever was was doing the animation and and working out the scene and everything. I'm I'm subtly teased. Anyway, so the rest of the uh, the festival will sort of leak out in dribs and drabs in terms of our coverage of it, like Chinese water torture. Excellent. <laughs> For the time being, though, because the clock is kind of ticking on this one, uh, I think we should bring you a chat with. Uh, Mr. Greg McLeod of the Brothers McLeod. Ah. The Brothers McLeod, of course, uh, are known for their films such as Codswallop and uh, most recently 365. They also did the pilot Isle of Spag, stuff for Random Acts. They did... um, Share a story as well. Yep. They've been knocking about a bit. I think we're both pretty much Team McLeod, aren't we? Yeah, certainly. Uh, it's it's nice that the writing side and the illustration side, kind of an animation, obviously, you know, meet together so so kind of beautifully. There's there's a there's a nice joint look and feel to their sort of work, which uh, which is just charming. Yeah, Team McLeod. Right now, they are kickstarting in a very sort of low key sense uh, uh, another short film project. It's called Maffa. And uh, they're not asking for a lot of money. In fact, they're hardly asking for any at all in the kind of world of Kickstarter, which usually sort of, you know, is, is after tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of dollars. I think they want about three grand just for a sort of mini animated documentary. But at the time that this podcast will go up, I think there'll be about a week left of the Kickstarter campaign. Kickstarter is an art in itself. I mean, most people don't really appreciate the effort that has to go into maintaining and managing a good Kickstarter project 
Drew Roper and the At Issue film that he's making at the moment is a is a brilliant example of uh, a well-managed project. Plenty of updates, plenty of feedback, great prizes. The very same with Daniel Greaves, uh, who we've had on the podcast, Mr. Plastermine, which premiered a couple of days ago at the Edinburgh International Film Festival and got a great reaction from the audience. And I, I was sat there thinking, this is really nice that that the only reason that this is happening is because of Kickstarter and not because of any kind of other other funding method. And without Kickstarter... And without a kind of an eye on the whole Kickstarter process and knowing how to manage a campaign, this wouldn't have happened. You know, so much more effort has gone into this than here's some money, here's some interruptions from, you know, the money people. You know, I think that it is definitely the future of the way this thing is going to go, but I think that there's still a lot of kinks to work out as far as the etiquette of it, perhaps. Mm -hmm. We shall see. So, of course, you know, this uh, particular project aside, there's a whole bunch of stuff on their plate, stuff that they've got in the pipeline, plans for a feature, their recent film 365, which was a pretty ambitious one. So we uh, managed to get some time with Greg McLeod, who was... uh, doing the sort of promotional rounds for 365 and the like, while I think Miles is holding the fort, I suppose, in the UK. So uh, let's turn it over to Greg McLeod. Do you find yourself with uh, the the way films travel? Do you accompany your films on the festival circuit usually? And do you think these types of festivals are important for filmmakers to network It's it's funny, this is the first film that I've really kind of decided I'm going to travel with. We had a film um, about in 2009 called Codswallop, and I went to a couple of festivals. Um, but this time I thought, you know, I may as well uh, take advantage of the trip. So, you know, we're doing Annecy, I'm going to Edinburgh, um, I'm off to Marfa in Texas um, early July. So I've just decided that, I'm, and I'm really proud of the film, so it's kind of nice to go. And it's quite an unusual thing as well, so um, it it's, gives me an excuse to go and do a bit of travelling and, and try and get a few meetings in while I'm doing it as an excuse to actually uh, justify the uh, expense. Could you describe a little bit about how you and Mars work together or how much it sort of varies from project to project or if you have a strict system in place? Me and Miles basically breaks down in a, uh, as Miles is the writer and I'm, I draw the pictures. Um, and it varies on project to project how, how much we collaborate. So Miles writes a lot of scripts for TV and I don't really have much um, input to that unless he's kind of stuck for an idea. Um, I do a lot of illustration work for people um, and I didn't work, which doesn't necessarily involve Miles. But the big projects and the one, the, the, the short films um, uh, and uh, the feature film idea we've got and the, the, some of the, the, the bigger TV series ideas, we basically sit down in a room together and the ideas are kind of generated from us spending time together. Um, and then when the idea is kind of gelled, we then he goes off and writes some stuff and I go off and draw some stuff and then we get back in the room again and so on and so on. And eventually we end up with something which is a kind of collaboration between... And, and then even in production, he kind of co-directs and he does some. He does a lot of the music, and I do a lot of the sound. And then we, in the post production, we sit and we, we work it out together. So there's a kind of collaborative thing, um, a kind of backwards and forwards, I guess, um, which works really well. And we're always kind of we're able to check each other as we go through the process. At what stage did you find yourselves really regularly collaborating? Was it sort of all throughout your lives, or did it just sort of begin when you left, sort of became professionals? It's interesting because we. And, I think brothers working together, although it's kind of you know a trope in the film industry, it isn't. It is quite rare, and I think we get asked questions a lot about you know why why us, and we are quite different. But we we play together as kids. You know, we'd have Lego versus play people, or or those kind of things. We'd make these massive setups and tell these stories as children. I mean, I guess 
and we read the same things like Asterix books and those kind of things so we have we have kind of a shared history in terms of the things we did and the things we listened to and watched so I think we obviously didn't do that through our teens necessarily but then when we came back together again it kind of felt really natural to be telling stories and we were just having fun again like we did when we were kids and we still do so I think that's probably why a lot of us just quite funny and energetic because we're tapping back into obviously that thing we had when we were kids so and, we, and you don't really think about that until people start asking you questions about it you go well, why is that and I think that it is interesting that we did play a hell of a lot together when we were kids and I think maybe that's helped us be able to do what we do now so the film you're here with uh, this year um, pretty ambitious as a sort of premise from the outset quite a commitment as opposed to, to make yourself do at least one second of animation every day was there ever sort of a concern that that wasn't going to be doable or what was sort of in place as far as like okay everything's ready mm. we're going to go mm. we're going to commit to this mm. it was interesting when the, the 365 idea just came to me one day I think I'd watched something online which was a similar thing but it was live action and I just went, oh, that'd be interesting. And I was looking for a, a new film. So I, I kind of started working on a film and it wasn't really going anywhere. Um, I wanted something that was kind of improvised and it, it was just going... I, I knew that I'd make eight minutes and it, was, it wouldn't be rubbish because there was no... It, you know, I, I wasn't working anyway, so I was looking for something new. I watched this thing, 365 popped into my head and I just kind of started it without really thinking about it. So, and I, the idea was I'd post an image every day on Facebook so people could follow it that way and kind of when I'd done three or four it started to spread and at that point I was kind of emotionally committed to the audience because I'd said I was going to do it and and then not doing it would mean I'd lose face and the more I got into it the more of my face I would have lost if if I'd have stopped so it did it was it was that kind of wanting the audience to see what I was doing as a responsibility to them and I think also if I'm honest there's an ego thing there it's like look what I'm doing aren't I, aren't, aren't I great for being able to do this kind of thing um, without being arrogant hopefully um, but, um, but that, it was a reward system you know you, you, if you make a film you want people to watch it and enjoy it and, and showing them a bit every day you get a little a little bit of a buzz every day and at the end of the month when we showed that month you get it you know so it, and now watching it with an audience is a whole different buzz so um I, don't, I think I had a couple of moments toward, right towards the end actually in December where I was just like oh my god please let this end but actually in general I really enjoyed it it was, good, it was just good fun I, could, I didn't have to stick to one character or one scenario every day it was just a new thing um, which kind of suits my personality so I think I think, um, I, I think it was actually, it wasn't easy but I, it was enjoyable as far as approaching the sound design for the film which to go with the visuals becomes quite complex was each second designed each day or did that all come at the end um, I did the sound in general I did the sound every day because um, I've always loved doing that I've been in bands since I was you know, I've always been in recording studios I've always enjoyed the sound and I think um, I work with um, a guy called Tom Angel quite a bit he, he'd give me some little guitar noises or sounds every now and again and they, they might trigger off an idea um, uh, David Camp as well who, who works out of Berlin he's worked on loads of things he, he, he did some stuff um, I got in touch with some people that I really like the Polar Bear guy called Seb Roachford who's an incredible drummer just approached him and said could you, could you donate a sound and he did which was great and we had people like David Tennant and Adam Buxton who we were doing other work with who just said can you just give us a word um, so it, the sound actually a lot of times generated the, generated the second it was listening to a sound that made it and I recorded things out and about you know, so there were found sounds but the set, I think the really important thing was that each 
movie, little mini one second movie, had its own one second soundtrack that was very specific. Because if there'd been just music over it all, I don't think it would have had the same impact. And actually, if you try to watch it without the sound on, it's almost impossible. You could, your brain needs the sound there to kind of anchor the timing almost. And actually, with, a, with sound, you can make the second feel longer than it is, which is quite interesting. So I had a lot of fun with that. So you've also, um, in recent years, you've produced other short films and TV projects and things like that. Recently, you did a project with Random Acts. And uh, how did you find working with them? Well, the Random Acts thing was really nice. They just approached us and said, have you got any ideas? And Miles had, was actually in the process of writing this little script idea he had where he was going to do around the whole Men, are, Men are from Mars and Women are from Venus thing where he was going to do one film about a guy going to space to Mars and another one were about uh, a woman travelling to Venus and then them phoning home to kind of go, I'm here. Uh, we haven't done the Venus one yet, but the, the, the Mars one was the one we did for Random Acts. And they, they were brilliant. We, we um, And usually work with the script editor on that one, um, just because we'd never done it before. So uh, who'd worked on um, uh, Red Dwarf and things like that, which was, a, a, you know, and it helped us to tighten the script up, actually. And we were really proud of that because we worked really hard on getting the timing right because um, it's basically yeah, it's the, it's a conversation any any partner's had where they're at a, where they're at an exhibition or a festival somewhere beautiful and lovely, and you go oh it's brilliant here it's lovely and they're going yeah right well I'm stuck at home thanks so that was that kind of conceit um, so they were great to work with they let us get on with it and we delivered and it's done really well and we recently put it back on onto Vimeo and it's had staff pick and 250,000 hits and so it's kind of gone out into the world um, which is which is lovely. The other quite major sort of high-profile project of yours was uh, Isla Spag, which, um, was that conceived as a pilot originally? Um, yeah, Isle of Spag was um, something we'd, we were told by lots of people we'd, we'd never be able to do, right. that doing a half-hour comedy animation pilot was insane, which just g'd us on even more. <laughs> so um, uh, it was an idea that I'd had yet, even before I could animate it. I just did these little strip cartoons of it. It was based on this sort of notion of a weird island with these strange creatures living on which was um, uh, based on a, a place in Cornwall um, that I visited and um, it developed and we had this idea we said well, well let's do it let's write a script let's try and find some money from somewhere and let's just make it and see what that's like and we were lucky we got some media funding from Europe um, and we were able to match fund that and then we just we just went away went away and did it and we worked with some fantastic voice talent um, David Holt and Lucy Montgomery Richard Ridings, who does Peppa Pig, Daddy, Daddy Pig, he was brilliant to work with, um, and we and we made it. We did this half an hour thing, and we we were close to getting it onto BBC Three, but only the hierarchy changed, and all that, which is fine. But and it's still out there, and it's online doing really well. And it, it was interesting. It was really lovely to have half an hour to tell a story, but it's still got loads of characters in it and lots of little vignettes, like a lot of our stuff has. So I think it was quite true to what we did. The only problem was it took so long that by the end of it, we thought we could write a better script now. So, but that, I guess that's the same with anything you do. You know, you after the fact, think you can do a better job. So, do you still have a kind of enthusiasm for the location and the characters? That if something came along where you could carry on, you'd be up for that. Yeah, we still we're still looking to pitch it again. Actually, we've left it. We kind of left it a while to sit and settle. It's done really well online and still gets good views. Um, but I think it seems now with Netflix and Amazon, as well as you know, I think BBC Three going online. There seems to be more of an appetite for that kind of thing, and I think that we're in a position to, to make it. All the you know the Bible's there, the characters are there. So um, if someone's out there who's got some cash <laughs> and they want to work with us, that'd be great. It'd be, I'd love to work with those characters again because it was really it was a great project to work on, really fun. It was never a bind. It was just really good, really good laugh. Well, sort of on that note, you're working on a, a 
crowdfunding campaign at the moment uh, for a new project, uh, Muffa. Yeah. Uh, what's the origin of that project? We've never tried the old uh, Kickstarter crowdfunding thing before. We've, we've, we've known people um, that have done it and have been successful. And um, we'd never had a project that we, you know, we thought would be suitable. But um, I was lucky enough to get 365 into a festival in Texas called the Marfa Film Festival, which was recommended to me by a journalist called Alex Hannaford, who's made a short film called The Last 40 Miles, which is out there as well. And uh, he's someone I was in a band with uh, way back in the uh, distant past. And um, so he was, his, festival, his film was in the festival, my film got in the festival, and I was like, I've never been to America. I'm going to go and it, then it struck me that it'd be interesting I've always wanted to do an animated travelogue and I always had the idea of travelling around Europe and doing it and I thought well I'm going somewhere I've never been it's uh, Marfa's this little town in the middle of the desert literally like a square of town um, but it's actually quite renowned for its art and things uh, I think then the film Giant was made there with um, James Dean Elizabeth Taylor and um, I just thought you know what I want to I'm going to I'm going to and the 365 a lot of it was animated when I was here there or anywhere so I thought well I'll just do the same thing I'll take my kit with me I'll photograph I'll record things I'll I'll animate while I'm on the way and I'll do I'm doing an eight day trip and I will make a kind of travel log so I have no idea what the final film will be but the interesting thing with, with, the, with the crowdfunder is we've just we didn't go mad we said £3,000 you know that's enough just to cover my you know production costs and the, the audio costs at the end um so it'd be interesting to see how that goes and whether um, whether anyone's willing to invest in us. Um, and the nice thing about it is because Miles has travelled a lot and I haven't, when we come back, even though I'll have been the one that's done the travelling, he's got a lot of experience of it, so he'll help shape the story, if you like. So we'll just have all this raw material and then we'll have a... I don't even know how long the film's going to be, five, six-minute film, about you know somebody from Stratford-upon-Avon going to this you know, little town in the middle of the desert. It should be hopefully be quite a good film. Because <laughs> that's also you have a kind of portable setup in a sense that you can take your animation life with you. Like what kind of equipment do you tend to sort of bring with you if you sort of animating like on the move? When I when I started three six five, I was very aware that I'd need a portable setup because I wasn't going to be in the office in the studio all the time. Um, so I got myself a MacBook Air, just the lightest thing I could find, stuck flash on it. And um, uh, I got a little bamboo Wacom tablet with a wireless thing. And a, you know, so everything was really light, stuck it in my bag. And wherever I was, I had it with me. So I, was a, I animated on holiday on the balcony. I animated in Annecy last year during a meal, you know. So wherever, and it was really freeing. It was kind of, and the way, the, the technique I used for the was very basic. It was just hand-drawn straight into the computer, coloured onto the next day kind of thing. So I, I really enjoy working like that. And I, and, and and I think I will probably work like that more in the future. And that's the the travel log's perfect for that because I'll, you know, I'll be able to sit down and just kind of animate as wherever I am. And I think it's that drawing from life thing. If you're there drawing it and it's there, there's kind of I don't know it's more of a connection. But you kind of you look harder at the place because you're having to draw it. So you're looking at you know if you're drawing some shutters, you're looking at them for five minutes as opposed to just going. Like so hopefully my experience of going to this this town will be heightened by the fact I'm actually I'm, I'm engaging with it in a, in a slightly different way than I would if I was just visiting it you found that it's good that you're able to make films in a way that can be either something more sort of stream of consciousness like 365 or Quads or, mm. or that and then also be able to do things that can be character based and can be story based mm. is there a particular type of storytelling that as a team you guys feel you gravitate more toward or comes more naturally storytelling wise it's quite interesting because when my, most of my short films have been 
no, I would say non-narrative in a traditional sense. So 365 isn't at all a very... I think you, you naturally find rhythms and, and, and little tropes and things, little, little ideas. And Codswallop had an emotional kind of arc. But Miles writes a lot for TV and you need to know story structure for that. And, and all the things he writes for have beats they have to, you have to hear. They tend to be three or five act structures. And Miles, I know, I think he really enjoys that. He enjoys, you know, working with that and playing with it and understanding how it works. Um, and I think if you can get it right, it's fantastic. And there's a few films that he's kind of looked at, short animations, for instance, where you can't see the five act structure, but it's there. And, and, any, and a lot of those, actually, interestingly, have gone on to win a lot of awards. Um, but if it's really obvious, like a lot, obviously a lot of the Hollywood films, you can kind of go, oh, there's that moment, and there's you know, so I find I find that a bit tricksy, but I, I really appreciate the skill of writing a great five act structure story, which kind of locks an audience in. And we're about to start a feature film after I've done Martha, which is going to be like self funded. It's going to be a, a, a um, based on the ex- existential pleading films that we did. This little character called Colin, um, and I want it to be partially improvised. And Miles is saying, "Well, we also need we also need that five act, so we need it." structure so we're working on a way of being able to combine the two things so there's a lot of subconscious in there that then gets filtered through some kind of conscious you know plan where we know that we have to hit kind of certain beats and points within that film because for the 80 minutes it, it there'll need to be something in there that will hold an audience for that long rather than just a series of random stuff yeah so um so that'd be interesting trying to get those two things together and we, we always do we do a talk about that about how you might have a subconscious idea that something just pop into your head but to make it work in a film, you have to consciously, you know, make twist it. So there are there are there are bits like that in three six five where I'm at the ends of months. Sometimes I'd consciously go, I need to slow it a bit here on the last one. And at the end of three six five, there's definitely four seconds where I knew it was the end of the film, and I had to give people that relief at the end. Um, so even though even though I do a lot of subconscious stuff, you still have to somehow organise it. <laughs> so that it isn't just a load of old stuff on the screen. Um, and I think doing that in a feature film will be interesting because we have to tell a, an overarching story, an emotional story, while still having the ability to improvise and have it feel fresh as we're making it. Um, and I think that's the issue when you're doing something that's very heavily scripted. It's a different mindset. You know, we have to heavily storyboard, heavily animatic. You know what it's going to be before you finish. Phone home absolutely the right thing to do on that because the, the, the comic timing had to be perfect it had to be just on and if I'd have just done any old thing it wouldn't have worked so it depends on the project and, uh, and I like working either way I think it's you know it's, uh, it keeps it fresh depending you know on, on what the project is so that was Greg McLeod chatting about 365 Martha and all the other juicy goodness that the brothers McLeod have been bringing to us the last few years very, very good luck to them for all upcoming endeavours. So if you want to find out more about their uh, their back catalogue and uh, and indeed their Kickstarter campaign for Martha, you can go to brothersmcleod.co.uk. That's B-R-O-T-H-E-R-S-M-C-L-E-O-D. And that's Martha with an F, as in the place, M-A-R-F-A, if you want to just hunt it down on Kickstarter as well. Uh, and they've got a little little animated video they made specially for it, which is uh, always a good way to start these things. Find out a little bit more. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. 
So we've reached the end of our June Squiggly Animation podcast. Interviews and grousing are plenty. I feel we've put the world to rights. Well, if if we don't, who else will? Exactly. Exactly! (laughs) Yes, another fun-filled month. We'd like to thank the guests of this month's podcast. If you want to get in touch with the podcast, you can do ben at squiggly.co.uk or you can get in touch with us on Twitter, which is at squiggly. You can get in touch with us on Facebook, facebook.com slash squigglymagazine. The Squiggly Podcast is presented by myself, Steve Henderson, and Ben Mitchell. It is produced and edited by Ben Mitchell with music by Wes Allard and Ben Mitchell. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Mr. Underscore S underscore Henderson. Ben is at Ben L. Mitchell. And don't forget, for all the latest animation-related news, reviews, interviews, and podcasts just like this one, visit squiggly.com. <laughs>